Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Sunday show, August the 12th, 2012. So, Saving Private Ryan. Mitt Romnatron has uh, selected uh, Paul Ryan as the vice president. Ooh, it's a cynical, giant black hole of ethical <laughs> inconsequentiality uh, sucking the Ron Paul slash Rand Paul favoritrons into the Republican matrix. So, uh, let's just go over a couple of basic facts you may or may not be aware of about the Ryan. And yes, he does look remarkably like a wind-up Republican Ken doll. But that's neither here nor there. Okay, so here's at this budget. It's a combo of the 2011-2012 budget. The Roadmap to Prosperity. Oh, it's just so mad. It's so insane. Okay. So um, he says that uh, he's got over $6 trillion of cuts over the next 10 years. Oh, but are they really cuts? What do you think? Yes? No? Maybe? No. There are no cuts. Um, it's not cuts from what the government spends today, but what, from pre what President Obama wants to spend. In other words, he's reducing the increase. And this, in the psycho world of government, they call a cut. Quite mad. Uh, the spending would actually increase by about a trillion dollars over the decade. Now, this is the radical, you know, <laughs> the media. Oh, lies, filthy lies, damned lies, government statistics, Satan, and then the media in ascending order of perfidy. Okay, so this is called a radical slashing budget. And uh, his budget by 2015... If it would ever to occur, which it won't, but uh, it would re reduce government spending to 20% of GDP by 2015. Well, Obama, you see, wants to cut it to 23%. It is currently at 25%. So you're looking at a three percentage point of GDP cut difference. And how does this compare in the past? Well, you see, when grabby hands, uh, dewy-eyed Bubba Magic Bill Clinton left office, um, government spending was 18%. So after radical, savage, bitter... Uh, libertarian-style cuts, um, Ryan might be able to get it down to two points above where it was when Clinton left, left office. Um, over 10 years, uh, the president's like, Obama's plan is going to add $11 trillion to the debt over 10 years. But Congressman Ryan, you see, his plan will only add $8, trillion, <laughs> only add eight trillions of dollars of debt over the next 10 years. Um, he is a big fan of increased military spending, and um, of course, you... you this is something conservatives need to grapple with. They won't, but they need to. Uh, they need to grapple with the fact that you cannot balance the budget if you eliminate only non-military spending. Can't be done. So he also wants to reduce the federal workforce by 15%. Um, Ryan's figure uh, is, is 10%. And they would do it by attrition. And, I mean, that's just cowardly crap. If you, you want to fire the inefficient workers, attrition is uh, just a way of avoiding any confrontation with the unions, which means the unions can, uh, could call the shots, which means nothing's going to change. Also, um, Ryan's budget has revenues for the government going, growing miraculously from $2.4 to $4.6 in 10 years just by cutting taxes. Um, I mean, that's the Laffer curve on steroids. Uh, so, yeah, overall, it's going to lead to 10 more years of deficit spending. Ryan's budget, it adds between 5 to $11 trillion to the national debt. Uh, spent a total of $40 trillion over the next 10 years. And his uh, Ryan's plan requires that the debt ceiling be raised. Um, and, oh, <laughs> do you know when the budget is going to be balanced in, in Ryan's plan? Because he's a radical, slashing, objectivist, Rand-style conservative. Uh, his budget uh, plans will balance the budget by 2040. 2040, 28 years from now. That really is quite 
mad. Uh, it increases the rate of spending over the next few years. It slows the rate. The rate of spending increases, doesn't cut anything. And what is his voting record? Let's just run over this very briefly, because remember, he is an objectivist-style libertarian. He voted yes to corporate welfare for big agriculture. He voted yes for the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, the bend over taxpayers. The bank have an unpowered, ungreased dildo for you. Uh, He voted yes for a bloated defense bill, voted no to repeal NDAA indefinite detentions. He voted yes to prohibit reductions in nuclear weapons as required by START Treaty. He voted no to limit military spending on the Afghanistan war. He voted yes to override military sequestration, spending cuts negotiated in last year's Let's um, Raise the Debt Limit Bill. He voted yes on CISPA, the bill that attacks Internet liberty and the First Amendment. He voted yes on corporate welfare for the Keystone Pipeline, which also authorized the use of eminent domain to seize private property for uh, a, uh, a private use. He voted no to extend payroll tax cuts, so kind of a tax increase on the poor and middle class. He voted yes to increase the debt ceiling. He voted yes to a war to the war in Libya. He voted no to limit funding of NATO for use in Libya. Libya. He voted no on removing armed forces from Libya. He voted yes to extend the Patriot Act. So please, please, I mean, do I even need to say it? Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. This is all smoke and mirrors, kabuki, drug trip nonsense. Uh, He's going to achieve nothing. Uh, What they're trying to do is just sucker you in one more time. Pretend that George W. never existed. Uh, Pretend that Ron Paul never existed. Pretend that Rand Paul exists in the netherworld. (laughs) between compromise and idealism and just attempt to hoover you in. Uh, don't be fooled. I mean, these men are all compulsive liars and misleaders and the media is only creating this artificial. I mean, you know, the media is, is, is like the, um, you know, like the quote umpires in uh, WWF, all the fake wrestling stuff. I mean, they just uh, pretend that everyone has these hatred zones just to stoke up the crowds. I mean, it's all nonsense. It's inconsequential. Uh, please don't get suckered in. Go out for a walk. Play with your dog. Enjoy your children. Uh, don't get suckered into this mad nonsense. Just two other little things about um, Paul Ryan. First of all, his connection with Ayn Rand is, is touted now, and um, this is considered to be a very, very important thing. Uh, it's all mad nonsense, of course. Ayn Rand was a committed, strong, passionate atheist, and um, Ryan is a Catholic. And so what that means either one one of two things has occurred. He's either read, he's very passionate about Ayn Rand. He hands out his books, uh, her books to his staffers and so on. And what that means is that he's either overturned her arguments against the existence of a deity or deities, uh, which I would love to hear. Wouldn't it be fantastic? That would be a great thing to change my mind on or to accept new evidence and arguments on. So he's either overturned Ayn Rand, which would make him... You know, if he could prove the existence of a deity, or at least rebut Ayn Rand's strong atheist arguments, would make him one of the greatest philosophers in recent memory. So he's either done that and kept it uh, hidden to himself, which is why he can read Ayn Rand um, and manage to maintain his uh, his religiosity, or uh, he's just cherry picking. He's just picking whatever he likes. In other words, none of his values are are a systematic whole. That he just cherry picks whatever he likes, and he's found that, uh, as the Republicans have found lately, that. The shrink, shrinking of government uh, will get them votes. Uh, they don't intend to do it. Uh, they're just lying to you to get your vote. Uh, please, please, do not be <laughs> the abused spouse who keeps going back for more. Uh, and um, the second thing, of course, is that in, Ron, in uh, Ryan's budget, he takes great aim at people, rich people who use corporate loopholes and, and tax loopholes to get away with not paying taxes. And then he is the enthusiastic, deep French uh, kisser and hugger of the man who chooses him for the VP position, although that man has hidden hundreds of millions of dollars in offshore accounts to avoid taxes. And uh, I believe that he also put down a dressage horse as a business expense. Uh, so then again, we have no principles, no 
principles of any kind running along here. Uh, he's just a, a another pretty boy sociopath who's out there to caress your balls while he pilfers your wallet. So <laughs> cross your legs, uh, get out the pepper spray of reason and evidence, and back away slowly. <laughs> Thank you so much. Let's move on to the callers now. I appreciate your um, time. This is the Sunday call-in show. Please feel free. Sundays, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for the foreseeable future. Uh, just come by freedomainradio.com to check it out. And now we will move on to the callers. Thank you so much for your time. All right. We're adding a phone caller. And he'll be up. A phone? Wow. You'll get cups and string, baby. We're calling We are John. going back in time. Yeah. This is John. Hello? Hello, John. Yes. Okay. Give me one second there. Okay. I got the uh, live stream on. Yeah, no rush. Okay. okay. Take your time. We're live. What's up, man? Okay. Oh, not much. Uh, well, my... The reason I was calling in today uh, with the politics are very... You could kind of ask this question. Uh, you know, normally, I say taking Steph's model that, uh, you know, politics is virtually meaningless. It's all just sort of shady guys behind uh, closed doors, but... A buddy of mine started, decided to run for state representative as a libertarian this year, and so I, you know, figured, hey, he's my buddy, I'll help him out, you know, do some campaigns for him and stuff, and by proxy, I've also been uh, passing out stuff for Gary Johnson, and... Uh, Hello? Excellent. Well, looks like we're off to a rousing start. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't tell you how many times I have literally heard the, something to the effect of, I would love to vote for Ron Paul or Gary Johnson, but Obama is an atheist Muslim antichrist who is going to be shot in the head soon and will be resurrected and implant a chip in our, hand, in our palm prints. Wow. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's... Um, do they? I mean, I mean, do they? Do they have no problem with an atheist Muslim? I mean, does that not seem like right up the front? <laughs> He's a tall, <laughs> short guy with a bald mohawk, right? Yeah, you're, right. exactly. So, but um, so sorry. These are people who who they won't vote for Gary Johnson or, or Ron Paul. Is that right? They, they, yeah, they they tell me straight up that you know they they like what Gary Johnson, Ron Paul have to say, but you know because Obama is an atheist Muslim antichrist. We can't have four more years of him, therefore we must vote for Mitt Romney. And where do you think they're getting the, um, you know, he's the Antichrist, Muslim, whatever, whatever, right? Where, where do you think they're picking that up? Well, yeah, I, I live in the Bible Belt. So, right. that's, I, I'm sure, like I said, you know, it, that, you know unfortunately, it, it is something, like I said, Steph, I, I don't know how much time you get to spend in the southern U.S., but it, it is an unfortunate thing that, you know, I mean, church is the big thing here, and a lot of churches are hardcore Republican. My home city yeah. of Jacksonville, you know, I make the joke in my home city of Jacksonville, it's not big oil or the mob that controls our city, it's big church. Right. And right. it's, you know, and not to mention, I think, you know, part of it is sort of the internet. Uh, but it's just, uh, you know, I'm sure... You know, I've read books like Myth of the Rational Voter and other things like that. Just, I, I don't know. It's like sort of the sideshow of it all. I'm not sure. Well, my question is, what do you say when these topics come up? Not that I think you should or shouldn't say anything. I'm just, I'm just sort of curious <laughs> what, what you do say. Uh, 
usually I go something to the effect of the lesser of two evils is still evil, and the enemy of my enemy is not my friend. And, right, so uh, you're not taking on the whole um, Antichrist. They, they, sorry, they believe he's going to be reincarnated or resurrected? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, he, he, I'm sure you know the, the whole story about the Antichrist. You know, you'll get, you know, somehow assassinated and then sort of the parallel to Jesus. He'll be re- resurrected in three days afterwards. And Yeah, and I think it's around, in, in Revelations he is described as a jug-eared beanpole who's fairly good with Al Green songs. Uh, so, I mean, it's very, very specific, and that's that's pretty neat. Um, look, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, this is the product of government schools. Right, I mean, the, the fact that people have come to adulthood after 12 years of education in how to think, reason, and process evidence and can still absorb and regurgitate these blood-soaked, apocalyptic, Ragnarok-style fairy tales is, um, is simply – I mean, it, it speaks to the power of a number of things. It speaks to the, uh, the incapacity of government schools to train anybody in rationality. I mean, that's, that's the case. Anybody I know who's well, learned anything I, I, about I rationality was, I was a product, I was a product of schools. government schools, although I, I, I had to admit my – Mine was sort of a, I got a voucher, so I, I didn't get the regular K through 12 okay. government training. Yeah, no, I mean, all, all government schools taught me was how to swallow, regurgitate, and become so perpetually bored that all I did was sexually fantasize all day, uh, which um, <laughs> was basically, that was, that was I, my I entire public mostly, school education. When I was a senior in high school, I took a class called Theory of Knowledge, and that, that's the only class I bothered to learn, any, I learned anything about life in, in high school. Right. So... Yeah, so government schools ain't doing it. Um, the church obviously is not doing anything to combat this kind of irrationality. In fact, the church is, is fostering it. And, and it also teaches the power, I think. I mean, I never know in reality. I never really know what, what people believe and what they are saying because that is necessary for their social circle. Does this make any sense? Like it, it's really hard to know what people believe deep down. You know, or whether they just well, okay. Look, if I if I question these beliefs, then no one in this town will talk to me. If I if I oppose this, uh, it's um, you know. But listen, be be encouraged. I mean, there's some pretty interesting things happening in the world of religiosity and uh, and atheism. And uh, let me just grab you a couple of stats. Did you know? Did you know that um, atheism in the U.S. just over the past six years has gone up five hundred percent? I think I remember his, I think was it now, we're a larger minority than Jews? Yes. Yes. A, um, but let me, let me give you a couple of stats. I mean, I think it's, I think it's worth mentioning. Um, certainly, I mean, I, I've been doing this game for 30-odd years, and it is really, really quite changed. So uh, the Irish have finally um, discovered REM and are losing their religion. But dum bum Oh, there's a fine, fine old song joke. Uh, so... Um, this is a study I, I, I that... Remember, I remember when, uh, what was it, Nine Inch Nails, Closer, that came out. That was, I remember that being a me. They wouldn't even play that song on the radio where I grew up. Is that, uh, Nine Inch Nails, I think I only know the song, uh, you bow down before the one you serve, you're gonna get what you deserve. That's them, right? Oh, no, uh, Closer was the one that goes, I want to fuck you like an animal, you get me closer to God. Really, and and the important thing is the, what kind of animal, uh, because uh, that that matters. Um, I believe some are more tender, and you would not want, say, a ferret uh, going at you. Anyway, okay, so let's um, let me just get some of these stats. Uh, do 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 do. So yeah, eleven million Irish Americans have left the Catholic Church. 
uh, recently, and um, uh, let me just see. So um, in America, the people who are you know out and out atheists uh, have gone from one percent to five percent, and that's quite interesting. There's been a, a, a growth in, in sort of unaffiliated or, or non-denominational, like like more uh, on the mm-hmm. agnostic uh, and and sort of humanist side. Uh, let me just get. Sorry, I'm just having a little trouble finding 40 countries, religious survey. Let me just get it here. You know, a real a real host would be completely prepared. But uh, I was not uh, expecting this. But um, uh, Yeah, a religion may become extinct in nine nations. And... Um, uh, so yeah, it's 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 really cranking up. Uh, the the number of people who are atheists uh, and 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 secularists uh, has gone from I think six or seven percent to twelve or thirteen percent just in the last six years, and there is a worldwide loss in uh, in religiosity. And uh, I believe it all can be traced back to this show. That's it. There's no other influence in the world that is. No, I'm just kidding, right? I mean, there's of course lots of people who are working towards it, uh, and uh, I mean this is. This is good and bad, right? I mean, this doesn't mean that people aren't going to re- replace religion with the, uh, with statism, of course, right? I mean, the the tendency well, is to yeah, swim from one pole to the other. Yeah, well, that's the other thing, I guess, is uh, you know, is that even though so many more atheists are coming out, it's that the vast majority of them are hardcore leftists. You know, yes, a, a, a yeah. they just replace one G word with another. God and government, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I just, I just wonder, you know, how, where do we get our, you know, sort of the, the atheist, anarcho-capitalist types, you know, sort of where do you see our revolution coming from? Well, as I said before, and I'll say again, our, our revolution comes from, from parenting. Our revolution comes from not having an authority, you know. I mean, I just I just put a video out yesterday uh, with with some studies about spanking uh, and and physical aggression against children. You know, if if you just you, you order children around and you don't reason with them, you don't listen to them, you don't let them uh, mutually explore the world with you, then they grow up with authority is arbitrary and authority is aggressive, and authority punishes you for standards that authority itself is not subjected to. Right? I mean, in one of these surveys, a mother was hitting a child, uh, uh, somewhere between the ages of two and five, uh, three and five. Mother was hitting a child because the child had either kicked or hit, and nobody knows. It was just an audio recording, and it could even have been accidental. The mother was hitting the child because the child um, was was saying, this will teach you not to hit. Whap, whap, whap. This is so insane. Uh, The irony, the hypocrisy is is just ridiculous, right? But what this means is that people grow up that, that authority is arbitrary, authority is aggressive, authority bullies, authority dominates, authority does not reason, and authority is exempt from the rules that it inflicts upon its victims. Well, that is a perfect template for religion and for statism. Only authority can, uh, can kill with impunity, as God does in the Old Testament. Only authority can levy taxes and go into debt on your behalf. You can't. Only authority can print money. Only authority can save souls. You can't. Uh, for you, it's immoral. And... Uh, this is all, you know, the state and, and religion is all just an effect of the family and early childhood experiences. Uh, this is true philosophically, it's true logically, it's true empirically, uh, it's very close to being confirmed. It's certainly all of the data that I've read uh, tends that way scientifically. So for me, it's about as close to an absolute as you can get. 
in these kinds of areas, and this is why I'm just constantly telling people. Just got an email from a guy. Actually, no, he posted on the – you can see the post on the, the video. He said, wow, I'm not going to hit my kids anymore. Thanks, Steph. Oh, mwah. that doesn't mean that he's going to teach them reason, but it means that there is a step <laughs> in the right direction. So uh, that's, uh, that's what it's all about. You can't, you can't win the war of reason with people who can't think, and people who are too traumatized as children uh, don't have the capacity to overcome – bias through reason and evidence uh, at least very few of them do as adults so i hope that makes some sense uh, yeah so i just and uh one final well i guess yeah it's pretty much about it so i appreciate it keep up the good work and uh hopefully hopefully uh i don't know a buddy of mine is working with the libertarian party of florida so he said seeing if you wanted to come down and speak so hopefully i'll get to see you then yeah, give him a poke. Um, always happy to uh, to talk with libertarians. So, all, all right. right. So uh, let me just you. Thanks, Let me just give you a couple of this data for those. So, a survey has found Ireland is second only to Vietnam and loss of religious sentiment. In a survey of more than fifty countries, I've heard some places it's only forty, but you, know, you can check that out. Ireland has experienced the second greatest drop in recent years in the percentage of the population that claims to be religious. This survey, which measured changes since '05, found that those in Ireland who consider themselves religious has fallen by twenty two percent in 2011 from 69 percent in 2005 um that's really quite astounding so there's less than half of the irish population consider themselves religious i mean i went i spent lots of summers in ireland my family is there i was born there and um i'm telling you that's <laughs> i think the ireland i grew up in boy so um and, uh, yeah, 57 countries were surveyed. Um, only Vietnam experienced a greater drop of 23% over the same period. And uh, Ireland was a joint seventh among the most atheists of these uh, 57 countries. Uh, and they, they talked to a huge number of people, like 50,000 people in this. So it was quite a significant amount of um, uh, people. So that is, um, uh, that is quite... Uh, quite fascinating. So Ireland is beside, uh, alongside Australia, Iceland, and Austria, a seventh of the ten most athe- atheistic countries. China on the top is at the top with almost half uh, of the population atheists, followed by Japan at 31%, Czech Republic at 30%, France at 29%, South Korea and Germany at 15%, and the Netherlands at 14%. The drop of, among those who consider themselves religious in other countries was 21% in France and Switzerland, 19% in South Africa, 17% in Iceland, 15% in Ecuador. 13%, a 13% drop in just a few years in the U.S., 12% in Canada and 10% in Austria. So of the country surveyed, 59% of their population think of themselves as religious, 23% think of themselves as not religious, and 13% think of themselves as convinced atheists. And overall, overall, those claiming to be religious dropped by 9%, while atheism rose by 3% between 2005 and 2011. The survey, the survey asked the same question in the 57 countries. Irrespective of whether you attend a place of worship or not, would you say that you are a religious person, not a religious person, or a convinced atheist? Let me just... Those claiming to be religious dropped by 9%, while atheism rose by 3% between 2005 and 2011. Is it just a coincidence that I first started publishing in 2005? Yes, it, it, it almost certainly is. <laughs> it certainly is. So, uh, I mean, that's, that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity. And this does not mean that the world is heading to a better place. Um, and, I mean, it's not like the Chinese who are atheists are all great parents and, and reject 
socialism, communism, and other forms of secular irrationality, or democracy, or you name it. But what it means is that there is an opening, right? Just because somebody is no longer buying a competitor's product, it doesn't mean he's going to turn around and buy yours, but it does mean that you have some opportunity, right? I mean, in any political campaign, you focus on the undecideds. And so I am... I'm very proud to have been part of uh, bringing, bringing this about. Um, you know, 40 million downloads uh, doesn't do any harm to these kinds of, uh, these kinds of ideas and arguments. So uh, thank you for your call. And uh, if we've got somebody else, uh, I would like to hear from you. <clears throat> Next up, we have Gerard. Hello hello. hello, hello. Hello. Hello, Steph. Can you hear me? I can. Okay, good. Hello from Paris, friends. Ah, hello. And are you an atheist? Oh, well, yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry. I I believe in nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in nothing. I think you just contradicted yourself. Let's not nag you about philosophy now. Oh, sorry. Just before I forget, there's a new feed, everyone. So go to freedomainradio.com forward slash podcast.aspx or just go to freedomainradio.com, go to podcast, make sure you check out the new feed. We are on volume six because I just can't shut Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yes, well, um, I have a lot of conversations with, uh, with my friends here in Paris about, um, about um, my analysis of the, of the things you, you talk about all the time. And uh, I quite honestly agree, agree with you. I, I could not agree more about um, the absence of the social contract, about uh, uh, the importance of freedom, of liberty, of uh, the individual, and so on, of course. But uh, I have some very good friends who are, uh, uh, with whom I have very similar ideas, with whom I, uh, I agree a lot on many things about, uh, about economy, philosophy, and so on. But I, I, I'm, I'm confronted with sort of a wall as soon as I talk about the social contract. And uh, as soon as, as I talk with them about uh, how I haven't signed anything, I, uh, I'm not, uh, uh, I was born in this country, but all I want is uh, maybe talk with people to try and change some things. Uh, they say, well, no, you can't because uh, we are all born here and uh, there is an implicit contract that, uh, well, yes, of course, we didn't sign, but uh, it's the product of a, of a very long history of, uh, of negotiation and decisions and uh, individual uh, uh, decisions and, and collective decisions. And so if we want to change anything, we cannot, uh, we cannot break this contract. All we can do is try and modify it with time. Uh, so, and are most of your friends are atheists? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not. Well, that's interesting because you know um, Christianity has a long and complex history, um, and uh, yet they seem to have been able to reject that. Christianity is the foundation of Western ethics. The older I get, the more I realize that's true, whether it's for atheists or not. But um, how is it that they get to reject religion, which has? Uh, which which is not even an implicit but an explicit contract. Uh, in other words, you you have to obey these rules or you go to hell. Uh, how is it that they get to escape one set 
of historical complex uh, complexities and very deep cultural histories with the contributions of millions of, of thinkers and theologians and believers, how is it that they get to reject one but affirm the other? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. All, all, I, we, we don't usually speak about religion at all, at all. Uh, well, no, and I, I wouldn't say that you would because, you, you know, I mean, if you're all atheists, but if they say, well, you know, that which has developed and that which is old and that which is, you know, culturally relevant and that which has had great contributions and that which is, you know, um, in, in the area or in the land, um, why you know, but they, they, have no point, they have no problem rejecting that, which means that those arguments are not universal, right? It means that they're only applying those arguments to the social contract of the state, not to, um, to religion, right? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Well, one of the hardest objections that I, that I had is, uh, is that, um, well, and, and it's, it, it's about uh, what, what you talk a lot and very often about this difference between, uh, between the, the individual uh, ethics, the, the ethics of the family, of, uh, of the individual, and the ethics of uh, of society as a whole. And you, you often talk about this kind of switch uh, that occurs. Well, sorry, let me, let me just be clear for those who are, you know, I was, you know, I, I don't want to assume that everyone's listened to all the private shows. Let me just be very, so the ethics of childhood is uh, identical in many ways to the ethics of the state and to the ethics of religion. The only reason that the state works is because of people's early childhood experiences, which are very similar. But we have this other world called adult to adult relationships. So if you understand that when people are talking about the state and the social contract, they are actually talking about the home, the family home, and their parents or their teachers or their priests or whatever other authority figures were in their life. And, you know, you've probably heard the phrase, I don't know what it is in France, and thank you for not switching to French, <laughs> you know, my house, my rules. When you live under my roof, you mm -hmm. do as I say, right? Well, mm -hmm. you don't get, you, 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 you know, this is, this is an imposition of power. Now, the parents own the house and the child lives in it. The government is perceived to own the country and you are born into it in the same way that you're born into your parents' house. Mm -hmm. The government has arbitrary and, and uh, often aggressive or violent rules that it inflicts upon the children, which itself is excluded from. Mm -hmm. And uh, the government uh, does not have to justify itself. And the government comes out of prehistory. The government is, has been around for a long time. The government has grown out of all this. But this is how children view their parents. Mm -hmm. Right. So when you're a child, your parents, they seem like they've been around forever. They're like gods. They're, you know, you, you can't really imagine them as children themselves and so on. And a lot of parents really kind of reject and resist that. So uh, the important thing to understand is that, uh, you know, 100 <laughs> percent of, of philosophical problems are solved with three things. One, definitions. Two, let's talk about what we're really talking about. And let's not bullshit into something else. Right. If people are talking about the social contract, Almost, almost certainly, in, unless they've gone through a hell of a lot of self-knowledge, they're talking about their early childhood experiences of authority within their parents' home. Because it's such a ludicrous and ridiculous idea that a bunch of elected officials own everyone uh, and therefore can order them around with virtual impunity. Um, it's such a ridiculous and, and insane idea that it can only seem sane because people have experienced it and absorbed it unconsciously for, for many years. And it has to be early childhood stuff. And, and the third, of course, is reason and evidence right <laughs> once you've got mm -hmm. the first two sorted away but so yeah when people talk about the social contract you can say well um just to just to make sure we're not talking about something else uh what was your experience have you ever heard the phrase um 
Like, why, why did you obey your parents? And people have basically come down to, I'm the one who puts food on the table. I'm the one who goes out to work. Uh, I'm the one who pays the bills around here. So as long as you live under my house, you, you go by my rules. My house, my rules. It will come down to some flavor or some form of that. And that's the only experience that can make the adult social – I mean, the, the government is the parents, the country is the house, and unfortunately, we remain forever children in this more than analogy but reality. Does that make mm. any sense? Yeah, 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 it does. Of course, yeah, it does. Um, but uh, that's not the the argument that I uh, that I heard uh, the other night uh, in the restaurant. Uh, they, uh, th- this friend said that um, there's a difference of sc- there is a difference uh, difference sorry of scale between uh, what happens uh, at the individual level and what happens at the social level, and this difference of sc- this difference of scale is the difference that uh, when you're in a group well he, he uh, no no one says that the government is uh, is the good solution and and that it's efficient and, uh, that's not the, the that's not the the argument uh, he says that um, when you're in a group you need to organize some kind of uh, collective self defense and at this scale Obviously, he says, you need someone to, uh, you need to, to design someone or something to take care of the group. Or the group can defend itself uh, as, uh, as, as an individual would, uh, would use uh, his self-defense, his right to self-defense. So what do you think? Can of- you ask this person? Uh, well, there's a couple of things I would say to that. The first thing I would, you can just pretend to be your friend, right? So um, who do you think won in Iraq? Uh, well, the, 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 the NATO, of course. NATO won in Iraq? Excuse me, I, 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 I'm not sure I get Like your... in, in the recent, uh, like when, when America invaded Iraq in 03, right? Yeah. America is, with, is in the process of withdrawing from Iraq. Uh, do you think that they have achieved their objectives and won a decisive victory uh, in Iraq? Well, right, because no. their goals were to turn it into a democracy, into a functioning market economy, to whatever, right? No, no, of course not. No. Okay, so so they lost. Uh, now, uh, on one of the sides of the conflict in Iraq, you had a government with trillions of dollars of resources, right? Yes. On the other side, who did you have? Well, who was fighting them? Well, uh, people with with guns or uh, very very. Very few resources. Right. And so, um, were, were they a government? Mm, yeah, I don't know. Yes. What? I, no, I, they weren't. They were insurgents, right? Yeah. Freedom fighters. They were rebels. They were, you know, whatever, right? And so here, in this situation, you have the most powerful government that has ever been conceived of in the history of modern warfare, or any warfare for that matter. You have a, a firepower disparity that can't even be calculated, Mm-hmm. And you have a victory on the part of people who spontaneously self-organized their own defense Yeah, yeah. against this. So the idea that in order to have an effective defense, we need to have a government means that – I mean this person simply hasn't even thought about the lessons of modern warfare. Mm-hmm. I mean how many governments have tried to invade Afghanistan over the past thousand years or two thousand yeah. years? Yes. And, yeah. and yet Afghanistan remains – in the hands of its defenders, so to speak. 
And yeah. so the idea that somehow we can get the most effective – I mean, you understand the military is just another government program. The idea, the idea that we can have some sort of effective defense um, through the government that can't be achieved through the spontaneous self-organization of interested individuals is – I mean, mm-hmm. it just means that any kind of military history hasn't been looked at in any objective way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. But, yeah, all right. But what, what about if we are, we, are, we are a group or a family or, uh, I don't know, uh, 50 friends and someone comes to uh, attack one of us? What do we do? Well, you, you pay your taxes because that's who's coming to attack you in your world, right? Uh-huh. Who's coming to attack you? Who's going to come and take your property? Yes. Well, the taxes, right? Who is going to come and throw you in jail if you don't send your yeah, children okay. to approved yeah. schools? Often yeah. it's the government. Who is okay. going to lock you in a cage for years because you have a little bit of garden-grown vegetation in your pocket that the state happens to disapprove of? Mm-hmm. Well, the government. Who mm-hmm. is going to sell off the future productivity, sweat, toil, and tears of your children to foreign bankers for the sake of a, sh- a few shekels to buy fr- bribe friends within the here and now? The state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the idea that you know we're going to give people the right to take from us whatever they want at will and to sell us all into debt slavery forever mm-hmm. in order to protect us from potential criminals is like saying, well, I, uh, uh, I'm afraid of getting a hangnail, so I'm going to pull a hiker trapped in a canyon and saw my own arm off. Yeah, all right. Okay, so, so what, uh, the answer is, uh, is what? Uh, it doesn't work. We, we cannot do that because... Well, no, no. The, the answer is that you, you, can't, you can't just jump over the context of what you're talking about. Not you, but your friend, right? So yeah, I would yeah, say yeah, to your yeah. friend, are you concerned about the initiation of force against peaceful individuals? And he would say, well, yes. Well, how on earth do you solve that by creating a system that survives only through the initiation of force against peaceful individuals? Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. cannot square that circle. If you are worried about the, see what happens is people pretend that the government is not violence. This is why they create the social contract. They pretend that the government is not coercion. Now they can only say the government will save you from coercion if they pretend that the government is not coercion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. That's the point. They 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 think they think that the government is not coercion. They think that the government, like if we if we say to uh if we are if we are twenty of us and we say to the three biggest ones uh, protect us, uh, they think that uh, that the government is just is just a, a common decision. That's that's right. But but this is but this is what happens, right? So. They say yeah, that the government work. has to have – yeah, I mean this is the, this is the standard rotating uh, – the revolving door of the social contract argument. So people will say it's voluntary because it's a contract. Yes. And then you say, okay, well, if it's <coughs> – excuse me, if it's voluntary, then we don't need compulsive laws and we can allow for competition. We don't need taxation and the government can't have a monopoly on services because it's voluntary, mm. right? Yeah. Like, I mean, if I say to a woman, you can go out with me and it's totally voluntary – then she would say, okay, well, if it's totally voluntary, then I have the right to say no, and I can date other people. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And if I say no, you don't have the right to say no, and you cannot date other people. In other words, I'm going to initiate force, and I'm going to claim a monopoly. Mm-hmm. Then she will have the perfect and moral right to say to me, you scumbag, <laughs> then it is not dating. It's rape. Mm-hmm. Right? If it is voluntary, then it is not government. If it is government, then it is involuntary. Mm -hmm. And if it is a contract, it is voluntary. 
if it is taxation, it is involuntary. And this is just the standard rotation that people have. Mm-hmm. Right? If you object to the violence, they will tell you it's voluntary. If you then say, here are the consequences of the social contract being voluntary, which is that I can choose to say no, yeah. and the government cannot have a monopoly, then they will tell you that this is not true. Yeah, okay. okay. And it only makes sense because of propaganda, and the propaganda can only rest on early childhood experiences, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll, and I'll, listen, get, get, get your friend to, to call in. I'd love that. You know, t- tell yeah. him, no, tell, tell him, look, if you want to own this bald idiot in Canada, <laughs> you really should. You know, <laughs> he promises he will not. Yeah, listen, he, he, this goes out to hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, you no, will no. get a chance to strike a real blow against a false doctrine that is being put forward. I promise I will not cut. <laughs> if I get completely beaten up and humiliated in this debate, I will not cut it. I will put it out there. He can have a transcript. He can have bragging rights. Okay, that good, he good, took yeah, down man. the host of the biggest philosophy show in the world and showed him <laughs> what's what. I mean, tell him to come on. Where is your Gallic pride? Yeah, I don't think so. He's very peaceful, but he speaks very good English anyway. So yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah no, I, 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 no, I, peaceful I, I, or not. Look, yeah. tell him I want to be corrected. Look, the last thing that I want to have is incorrect ideas about violence and voluntarism, because that really is the light and dark of ethics. And the most important conversation in the world is about ethics. So please, I I mean this in all sincerity. If I have made some fundamental error for 30 years and I have misidentified violence and voluntarism, then he he really, I I beg him to to come on and to tell me, um, to tell me to set me straight. All right. I'll do that. I'll talk to you. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. Have a good, have a good day. Bye. Thank you. And um, I won't tell my story about France. Love France. Uh, anyway. Okay. So uh, because we've got more call on, on deck. Uh, you, you, who we, who we got up next? You're welcome. You're welcome in Paris anytime. Oh, thank you. Oh, <laughs> man. I'm, I'm going. i got to cut the short now. i got to go. i got to go. <laughs> okay. Bye. But where's your passport? Uh, oh, yeah. Right. 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 No, no. I held that close. Yeah. Keep right. your friends close and your passport closer. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, next up, we have Save Yourself. Hey, Steph. Hello. Um, okay, I wrote this down. I don't know how this is going to come across. Um, it's basically, I realize my approval-seeking giving machine is impaired from my childhood out of my fear of abandonment, and I don't know uh, rational forms of seeking or giving approval. And I, uh, like, outside of that, like, when I recognize I'm just, like, trying to uh, seek approval, and I realize that it's because of my fear of abandonment, I don't know what to do with that realization like in the moment like how do what like how would i communicate that to someone like oh i didn't mean to actually give you approval you know besides obviously saying it that way but like right, right. yeah that's a very very smart and sensible question um can you give me a more concrete example if anything comes to mind yeah i just want to make sure and, I'm yeah sure and this is and this is the thing is that like it's with basic things all the time like i have one coworker i work with i work at a restaurant and uh she will uh, make a mistake and then look to me for approval and I don't want to give her approval. At the same time, I don't want to be rude and just like ignore her. And I don't really know what to say in that kind Sorry, of situation. That, does she look for you? Does she look for like approval, or does she look more for forgiveness? That's a good question. I don't. I actually. I don't even know that there was a difference between the two. So I. I don't know. Well, you you can't really approve of a mistake. Right. But what you can do is you can say, but it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And which true. do you think she's? Um, 
Like, okay, so what kind of mistake are we are we talking? Does she put the wrong order in? Does she um, forget to bring food out until it's cold? Does she not it's descend to the table? It's all that. Yeah, it's basically everything. Like, but it's 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 like it's so small. Like it's only, like it's not like she'll say sorry for like things that like it's not even unavoidable. Like it's something like completely like everyone does it. Like um uh like i will walk by her and like she will not be in my way or anything and she'll just say i'm sorry and like if i were to count she probably says it at least like 10 or 12 times a day and i it, like if i were to try to think like i can't really even think of any time she's really made a mistake or anything like that that i would remember like oh yeah i'm glad she apologized but like it's kind of those kinds of like little little things all the time uh okay so they're not actually mistakes they are uh, sort of just like an e-jerk ap- ap- apologetic thing yeah, yeah, that would probably be more accurate. Right, and uh, where do you think that comes from in her, if we can hypothesize? That's a very good question. I really do strongly believe, of course, I don't know for sure, but I strongly believe that she just um, wants to feel okay and wants to know that it was okay what she just did. That, like, there's nothing wrong with anything that she did. Because, like... It, She'll look at me, and then if I don't say anything, like, it's almost like she won't know what to say until I say something. Like, it will be, and she's very talkative, and she'll just stop talking. Like, she won't say anything until I say something next. Right, right. Right, and I would guess, I mean, you know, she's not here, but uh, but I would guess that a lot of people's habits, if they've gone through any kind of significant aggression as children, a lot of people's habits are lion-taming. Oh, yeah, right. In other sense. words, um, uh, if there was a conflict between myself and my parents, uh, my parents would not admit that they were wrong. My parents would aggress against me, and therefore I'm the one who had to give way. I'm the one who had to apologize. I'm the one who had to make it right. You know, I'm just hypothesizing, right? But but this could be the case. This, to me, that would be the most likely case. Now that also and that also sorry, explains ahead. me too. And okay, go ahead. I I don't know if that like I really I mean. I was writing down my question and I kind of just got confused and wrote a bunch of things down. So like basically I guess like that's what I was like trying to say is that like that's sort of what I'm doing too. And like like I would I would be like if I said like okay like oh okay you're sorry or right, that's okay or whatever. Like I would then feel like well did I just like sacrifice myself or did I, did I just say something I didn't mean or am I like like get having – like my fear is I don't want to have the power my dad had over me, over anybody, and I don't want to also give that power to anybody else. Right. By like – Well, you look, you have much more control over the first thing you said than over the second. In other words, it is a lot easier in my experience to not exercise power over others than to avoid – experiencing the exercise of others' power over you. Yeah, yeah. Right? So it's easier for me to not yell at my daughter than it is for me to not feel anxious if someone yells at me. Right, yeah. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And now what I my mind falls to is that if I just don't do anything, then I won't be yelling. And like this is where like the black and white is that I don't know how else to communicate like I, I know that i do and that's sort of where i guess i'm just defaulting but i just it's really just awkward and i'm just i guess i'm not used to it so i don't know if it's like if if i should like practice that at work because like it could be really awkward and i wouldn't want to like you know what i mean i don't wouldn't want to make that into something this like that big and i it's really small yeah, I mean, when you think about it but like it's in my head like it's just such a big deal it is no i it, there's 
there's nothing small, I think, in human interactions because there's so much that can be gleaned almost from the apostrophes of, of conversations, the pauses, the, yeah. the eye darts, whatever, right? So, so, I mean, first of all, I really want to applaud you for what that's worth for your commitment to avoid exercising power over others. Thank you. I think, I think that's incredibly great and, and foundational, and this, I believe, will serve you enormously well. In, in your life. I mean, I am very, uh, I'm very conscious of this with, with my own daughter. I mean, not that you're obviously a kid, but I'm very, you know, I tell her stories about when I was a boy so that she understands that I was a child and I grew up. Uh, I don't have any special authority uh, because I'm bigger and, uh, you know, I'm, I can make arguments and give sort of reasons why. I can claim experience, but I have to explain it and so on. And when I'm wrong, uh, I, I make sure that she knows it, right? So, if she says something and I disagree with her and she turns out to be right, then we go back over it and I say, well, who was right? Uh, I was daddy and who was wrong? You were daddy, yes. And sometimes the other way will go the other way. And so I'm, I'm very clear for uh, my relationship with her that um, she knows that I was just her size and so on and that uh, I, don't have any, I don't have any authority because I'm bigger. I have more experience. I can further see the consequences of certain choices, uh, but even that has to be a case that I can make now that she's, you know, three and a half and we can have, I mean, all we do half the day is, is negotiate, which is a real delight. And uh, she's really, really good at it. So anyway, um, so I really want to point out that, that this, this goal of not exercising power over others is fantastic. Um, and when you start to see how much preemptive lion taming goes on in the world, I think that it will break your heart. I mean, it is, it is heartbreaking once you really begin to see it because you see how many people have not been treated with dignity and respect and egalitarianism as children. Uh, you can see the footprints to some degree of authority predators on the faces of humanity in so many places uh, when, when you see this kind of stuff. And, I mean, I, just by the by, I mean, as a thought exercise, imagine what would change in the world if children were all treated with peace and dignity and respect and so on? What would change in the world? Well, <laughs> the price of managers would go down because there'd be more competition for managers, right? I mean, this person, if they're this afraid of a tiny error that isn't really an error that they need to apologize, then it seems unlikely that they would have the authority of going head-to-head -head with any kind of manager. And so the, the ruling classes, in a sense, need children to be maltreated in order to keep the price of what they do high and also it, it shapes the kind of leadership that works, right? The, an, an aggressive kind of leadership, and I worked in a bunch of restaurants, it seemed to be quite common, uh, the Gordon Ramsay phenomenon, right? An aggressive kind of leadership only works with traumatized people. Uh, and um, if there were no traumatized people, these leaders would be tossed outside the next day uh, because people would just be like, what are you doing? This is, <laughs> this is insane. You know, in the same way that, you know, a long time ago, you could bring a Bushido blade to... <laughs> your place of work if you were in the military and you could have authority that way you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago. But now if you bring a Bushido blade to work, you are escorted off the premises as being insane. And the same thing would happen in the future with, with sort of peaceful, with the offspring of peaceful parenting growing up, that this stuff just wouldn't, wouldn't work on them, this bullying, this yelling, this, all this kind of stuff. It would fundamentally change the way society works, the way leadership works, the way hierarchies work, the way corporations and governments and, and, and churches and all that. It would completely change. And this is one of the reasons why there's such resistance to treating children well, because the entire pyramid and structure in society is predicated, is built on the base of these foot-stomped young 
youngsters. So anyway, I just want to point that out. I think you'll see that quite a bit. Um, and so I'm so sorry, because if you asked a question, it has completely escaped me. Um, was there something in particular that, that I could help you with, with regards to this interaction? You talked about how to, um, to, to receive uh, people's good opinion or, or give it. Is that right? Uh, uh, yeah. And it was just like, if I just don't want to like exercise power, like this, the way you said, I just don't want to exercise power over people. Um, like I, I don't like, and I, the thing is, is I don't know that I'm doing it until I've already done it. And so even, I guess at that, that's another question for myself, but at that point, like even afterwards, I realized that, you know, and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean, or whatever you, you say or whatever from whatever I did, like what do, like I just, like, cause I'm just, I've been raised to just like not speak my feelings, not speak my thoughts, even not really have conversation. So I just don't know the language of like, hey, you know, I, I don't like that or like, I know like that that's how simple it is. And that's what I want to do. Like, I'll give you an example. Today, my manager called me a bitch. And I didn't like that at all. And I didn't say anything. And ever since that happened, like, my whole day was like, wow. Like, but I, I mean, I realized why I didn't say anything in return. Then I'm like, okay, so next time if this happens again, I hope it doesn't, but maybe it does, um, I will say I don't like that. And, like, from, like, that to me, that whole thing is just, like, awkward. But she's the one that's being awkward calling me a bitch. And so it's not my fault if she calls me a bitch and then I say I don't like that if she feels awkward because – and I, when, when I thought about this, I thought about that sort of like hot potato metaphor you used in another video because like I right. felt like she – it looked like she felt better and then I felt worse. And yeah. I just, just – just from there, like that, that's sort of, I guess that's sort of where I'm coming from. Like how do – I guess how do you speak your mind without – feeling offended i mean i guess that's just a question for myself but do you get where i'm going no no it's it's a great question and i mean i, I wish that okay. yeah first of all i think recognizing what she felt better because you felt worse right that's the win-lose of abuse right that's that's the uh the vampirism right they yeah. get your blood and you get that's less a, blood sorry to interrupt but that's actually interesting because yeah. actually she really loves vampires and that's all she ever talks about right and and <laughs> i mean vampires are very clear metaphors right i mean they um they live on other people's um, precious fluids though, yeah. right, on their soul and their identities. They have no reflection in the mirror, right? They have no identity. They can't see themselves. Uh, to me, this is just, it's just sociopathy. And yeah, just, just to, to, to give you some right? feedback on that, because this was really interesting too. I, uh, she, she would say other things and they weren't personal to me, but like, she would just like call me like, well, little boy, I guess that is personal, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't get offended by it. And I just ignored her. And after I ignored her for like 20 seconds, she didn't say anything. And then she asked me how I was doing. Like she asked, like she was like, I would say, I mean, if I could put my finger on it, I would say like her true self came out. But like, I just want to know like quick, fast ways without having to like sort of fight someone's false self or like, I don't know. I guess it's it's sort of just another, like I just want this tool to sort of use to express myself without like engaging someone's false self, I guess. Yeah, and look, I mean, uh, I don't know of any ways to deal with bullies than humor. I know it's a weird, right? Because you say, well, I don't like that. So, oh, is, 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 is little bitch getting upset? Now you're going to cry, right? So if, if you assert rational needs in front of a bully, I don't, I've not found to me that that works particularly well. Again, maybe I just don't do it the right way or whatever. But what popped into my head, I said somebody, <laughs> somebody at a restaurant calls me a bitch. It's like, wait. I'm a female dog. Well, dogs aren't allowed in the restaurant. Woohoo! Day off. 
See, that's funny that you say that. And that, that's actually what I was going to say. I was going to say the whole female dog thing. But then, like, I was a little offended by it. And so, like, I wanted to, like, kind of get to the bottom of it. But I guess I don't know if I'm just being unrealistic. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter because she's just a coworker, And, I mean, we hardly work together. And it doesn't, like like you said, if you just joke about it, it's probably a lot quicker and a lot easier. Because then I yeah, put the I ball mean, on my court. Right. 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 I mean, yeah, I mean, it's... There is something about if 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 you're if you're like if you're not intimidated, well, I mean, or if, if you can get them to believe that you're not intimidated or whatever, then that can be incredibly helpful uh, because they, you know, if somebody attempts to exercise power over you and they don't, that's that's very negative for them. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So really, right? Just- so if yeah. Yeah, just just make jokes. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the moment, I found that to be to be quite effective. It does tend to push people uh, people back. Uh, it, it it's it's startling to them, and that that can be helpful. That can be helpful. Uh, and um, and what it does is it it changes. If this was a pattern from your childhood, it changes that pattern. Right, because when parents are aggressive, if you make a joke of it, they tend to become like if you have parents who are on the, the dark side of, of parenting, it tends to make things escalate, right? Whereas as an adult, that's you know, that's that's I mean, I, I've mentioned this before, it's just this, the one that sort of pops into my head was, you know, many, many years ago when I worked uh, on the trading floor of a, uh, a stock exchange trading company. Uh, my boss uh, assigned me a computer programmer would come in like every half an hour to demand to know whether it was done or not. And, you know, he was a pretty intimidating guy. And um, anyway, I just looked up at him and it's the one, followed him to his office and said, okay, listen, man, I promise. When I finish this program, you know, just so you don't wear out your shoes, uh, uh, if not, you're welcome. If, you know, when I finish this program, I will come straight to your office. I will not pass go. I will not go to the washroom. I will not tie my shoes. I promise you, I will come straight to your office and tell you and this way you don't have to you know get leg cramps coming over here all you know plus you know this interruptions make it slower and all that and and so sort of saying <laughs> you know there's a lot that's communicated in that and um that can be uh that can be helpful and we ended up with a fairly decent relationship uh, but um it is also a kindness to bullies not that i'm saying you would this would be a motive or whatever but it is a, if you if you reject someone's bullying in a positive way, it frees them as well as freeing you. Ah, uh, that makes sense too because this was actually interesting because I realized because today's uh, Sunday and she usually parties on Saturday nights, at least is that from what she says. And I said to myself very quickly, I was like, wow, and because I, I, I open every Sunday morning now, uh, I'm going to have to deal with this every Sunday morning. And I'm like, so basically she's going to have a good night or doing whatever she voluntarily wants to do, come to work, and then she's going to be treating me the way she treats others. And then she's going to get this reaction from me. And then she's going to be confused and more hesitant or if not, then I'll. So it was, it was like that win-lose feeling. But now with the humor, it's like I definitely see what you're saying because now it kind of opens her up and me up. And sort of, uh, you know, in sort of more of a like a sheath-like manner for me, but like, yeah, it, like I can if, see where it's a win-win. Yeah, like so. If if you know how you, you walk up to someone, you shake your hands up and down, right? Well, yeah. imagine if you, someone walks up to shake your hand and you just start waving your hand back and forth, like from left to right. <laughs> yeah. What are they going to do? They have to change what they're doing. I mean, this doesn't mean that you have responsibility for how other people, you know, do whatever they do. But if you change what 
you're doing, the other person has to change what they're doing. I mean, if somebody walks up to shake your hand and you keep your hands clasped behind, what are they going to mime? That you're, <laughs> you know, they have to do something different than what they would have done if you'd stuck your hand out. And um, if you break the cycle in yourself, then you break the cycle in others. So, I mean, this is, you know, at least to me, was very advanced stuff, right? So, there are people who are no longer in my life because they could not stop bullying. They could not stop one-upping me. And it is actually a very kind thing for me to do for them as well. You know, it takes the drug away from the addict. And maybe they go find it somewhere else, but that's, you know, less important. But um, every time you let someone treat you badly, it does them, it obviously does you harm, it does them harm as well. And taking myself out of the equation of negative relationships, which can't be reformed and can't be changed, um, is, I mean, it is, it's a strange way to look at it, but I, I, I really do believe that it is the most compassionate thing you can do to bullies is to change the interaction, to, to shake it up, to, to get them to act in a different kind of way. It frees them from the grooves in their own mind as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't think about it that way. And again, I'm not saying I don't believe in I don't I mean you obviously maybe maybe true. I don't believe sort of we act out of love for our abusers. I don't I think that's to twist the definition of love. Um since I really do know what love is with my wife and my daughter and, and some close friends, I really do know what love is. So I'm not going to take the same word and apply it to people who are doing me harm. But there is a kind of compassion in breaking the cycle in yourself because that disrupts the cycle in others. It gives them an opportunity to act in a different kind of kind of way. Wow, yeah. that's th- Thank you. That's very revealing. Yeah. You're very welcome. Okay, well, yeah, well, that was all I have. Thank you. Yeah, and, and the, sorry, there's just one last thing because you said um, that you wanted to seek other people's approval. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and... Yeah, and it's sort of when like this situation like that happens where she'll call me like if she calls me a bitch, then it's like I fall into that sort of paradigm, and I'm like, okay, I have to seek for approval for everything. Right, and I just sort of now, realize. Uh, but but I think it's very important to be clear about what's happening here. Um, if I mean, it's, it takes so some guy comes up to me in an alley, sticks a gun in my ribs, and or I don't know, sticks a knife in my ribs, and then I push him over and run away. What am I seeking in that moment? Survival. Safety, yeah. Yeah. I'm seeking safety because the person has the power to do me harm. And I'm seeking safety. And so it's, it's not so much approval that you want from the person is, is safety from the person. Does, does that make any sense? Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. That saves me a lot of work too because I, I just thought it was like I was seeking approval. But yeah, that definitely, no. I definitely see that because I also see in other people too that work for the company that she kind of does those things to where they'll act in the same way where like when she's there and like she's in that mood or whatever, they'll do the, like they'll react the same, like when they're about to do something, like they'll stop and see if she's around the corner and then they'll be like, okay, she's not. And you know, they'll just keep going. Right. 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 And, uh, you know, once we identify the truth about our interactions with people, I think that the, the, the course becomes much clearer because if, like, you, you, I think, would be relatively happy if she simply stopped giving you nasty terms, right? Like, nasty words. Yeah. Um, you, you don't want to marry her, be a best friend, or, you know, she's not going to be uh, officiating at your wedding. 
you would just, you know, let's just stop with the negative. So what you want from that person is a, uh, a, a security or safety from, from the harm that can inflict. Now, a lot of people will say, well, you have to understand that she's acting out for this and, 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 you know, it's not about you, it's about her and this and that and the other. Uh, maybe that works for some people and certainly uh, people in the chat room can let me know if it does. I don't find that stuff too helpful. Um, you know, there was a question the other day that was floating around, which was, can we ever be cured of early trauma? Um, mm, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't think so. It's like saying, can we be cured of a twist fracture in our leg? Well, no. I mean, you can get physio, you can, you know, you can walk around again, you may even regain full mobility and so on, but you can never be somebody who wasn't, who didn't have that injury. You may even end up stronger as a result of physio. Physio might get you into exercise and, you know, whatever, right? So it doesn't mean that you're debilitated or anything. But I think that once you have learned the language of aggression, if you've learned it in your family, expecting you to unlearn it is unrealistic in the extreme because that's the way that your brain is patterned. That's the way it's like if you spoke English for the first 20 years of your life, can you ever not speak English? Can someone ever speak to you in English and you have no idea what they're saying? Of course not. Of course not. So I, I think that this idea, it, to me, it just ends up being a trap that ends up blaming the victim to say, well, you should just manage your own responses and talk yourself out of whatever negative stuff people put into your life and so on. I don't think that's realistic. I don't think that accords with sort of the science of brain development as I understand it. Uh, it's, you know, there's a picture that somebody posted on my Facebook page about uh, a, an Iraqi veteran curled up in a fetal position because fireworks were on. And there's not much point saying to that guy, look, these are just fireworks. They're here for your entertainment. You just get up, shake it off, you know, <laughs> walk it off. I mean, no, because he is undergoing a physiological response in his body that is far below the layer of his consciousness. And so I think that the same thing occurs when we find ourselves, if, if we have experienced threats as children, when we find ourselves in threatening situations as adults, all of the amygdala and fight or flight and all that all gets activated and i guess we can you know work to soothe ourselves and calm ourselves down and so on but it's there nonetheless and you can't prevent that from happening that's an autonomous nervous response that is laid in so early in childhood i mean obviously i think you can have a happy life you can be a great person you can have love you can have all of these wonderful things but i'm concerned about the standard which says we can undo the impacts of formative brain development i don't think that's true i don't think that's true um, anyway, so, I mean, I, I, and please understand, I'm, I have no particular expertise. Uh, I'm really speaking from my own experience and the experience of people that I've known. Uh, this may be, turn out to be entirely false, but I'm, yeah, I am concerned about the ethic which says, just rise above it. Don't let it bother you. Recognize it's not about you, it's about the other person and so on. I think that's like saying, okay, so you spoke nothing but English for the first 20 years and now you're 25. So if somebody speaks you, to you in English, just don't understand them. <laughs> well, no, that's, you know, the processing of language is autonomous by the time you become that proficient in it. So anyway, I just want to sort of mention that I wouldn't have that as a standard. Um, but there's still things you can do to disrupt the pattern. There's still things that you can do to make yourself feel better in those situations. But I think that we don't want it to turn into self-attack if we're bothered by abusers, if we've had a history with abuse. 
Yeah, for sure. I totally agree, too. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much uh, for, for calling in. Those are just, you know, excellent, fantastic questions, as always. Yeah, and I just want to say thank you so much, too, for all your help, because uh, I've been seeing a counselor and stuff, and it, it really is great to to have a counselor and to be able to call you and and uh, just because that right there, like I could have spent, I have the next day off. I could have spent all day writing, and and I don't know like how far along I would have come to that. It's just very, very easy and very simple. Just you know, to be able to you know when you need it to be able to to talk to someone like this. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate that, and congratulations on the therapy too. That's that's great. All right, yeah. next, next up we have Richard. Richard. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. Uh, I want to say thank you. I spoke with you a while back when my son was in prison. Uh, she still is. And the advice you gave me was great to ask him the questions. So there's that. Um, yeah. uh, and it's great advice, I think, for anyone to ask what their three worst and best experiences are and etc. I, I just I had a question that you you may have covered in a podcast, but I unfortunately have not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> At this point, please feel free to ask again because yeah, you know, yeah, there's so yeah. much out I, there. That, I haven't yeah. gone through ten thousand of them yet, so um, I, and it has to do with because I have a daughter who is nine months old, and you know we want to have more kids eventually. And I'm wondering you personally what you think about when is the right time as far as uh, for, for the kid, how much? Okay, you, for instance, are you going to have more kids? No, I'm. Um, I'm. I'm. I'm a, a man, so yeah, <laughs> not really, not really possible for me unless right, there's right, something right. possibly I could do with um, a. Uh, what's it? What are you going to do? Keep it in a box? <laughs> That's the line from uh, Life of Brian. Yeah. Um, look, as far as okay, um, how many people do you know who get along well with their siblings? Most. Okay, good. And uh, what's the age difference of the siblings that you know who, who get along with, if there's any pattern, the best? Uh, two to three years, usually. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, so if, if that's your experience and that's the range, that would seem to me to be a pretty decent area. I mean, this is all obviously very subjective and so on, but uh, I think if the kids are too close together, it's pretty exhausting for the parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think if the kids are too far apart, then they're just not going to be close enough in age to enjoy the same things right. together, if that makes any sense. So yeah. I think, you know, somewhere in there may be, may be the sweet spot. But, I mean, it's obviously a very, very personal decision for everyone. Right, right. Well, I, what, what I, I'm kind of wrestling with, though, is just the idea of respecting the kids' preferences and, and for them to be able to understand it. And it takes resources away from us. You know, it, 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 you know do, do they want a kid? How, how can they know if they want to have an, a little brother or a little sister? Yeah, I mean, it's, that's a tough question because I actually have a call I haven't released yet with some parents where I was sort of working through this. And, I was, you know, they, they have another kid and they were saying, well, you know, the, the older kid doesn't really like it. And it's like, well, what's the case for having a, a sibling if you're a kid? You know, what's the case? Well, down the road, you'll be able to play together. It's like, well, yeah, <laughs> you got a newborn. That's going to be like three three years or more. Um, I think kids really start to sort of play side instead of just side by side. They play with each other around sort of three, three and a half to four and a half years old. 
So he's not, you know, <laughs> hey, son, you're two, but in four years, you'll be able to play with your, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't really, that's not much that's going to be that compelling. Mm-hmm. So it is, um, it's tough, uh, you know, for, uh, for the elder siblings. I, I don't know how to make, how to sell that, <laughs> so to speak, to, to them. There'll be more yeah. love in the house. It's like, well, you know, mommy and daddy will be more tired. We will have less time for you. Uh, they'll be yelling, screaming, <laughs> you know, and, and all that. And um, uh, so it, it, it is a hard case to make for the the sibling uh, as to why another sibling would be great. I didn't come up with an answer to that. I, you know, I couldn't. <laughs> I've thought about it intimately since. Uh, I don't have a good answer as to how you would make that case. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, but I do think I, I do think that as a whole, if you sort of look at the big picture, you know, you, you, it's tough to make the case with an 18 month old why you need to brush their teeth, right? right? But you still have to brush your teeth, right? Or why yeah. they need to get their shots? Uh, well, I mean, again, I think the shots are valid. Then you got to get the shots, right? So it's it's tough to make those cases, but you are responsible for the life experience. And you know, I think if if siblings, you know, the the siblings who are close, I think, are a great benefit to each other's lives. It is what survives family. What survives is family when the parents are dead and gone are the siblings. And that is a continuity throughout their whole life that if the sibling relationship is good, I think can be just an, a wonderful and most amazingly beneficial addition to – I mean it's nice to know people who knew you when you were a kid you know, through right. your whole life. Yeah. Uh, and you know, lots of milestones to celebrate together uh, and lots of people to help you raise your kids uh, together and there's lots of great stuff that goes on with a positive and beneficial sibling relationship that you can't sell to a two-year-old, <laughs> you know? Well, when you get married, <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, yeah. you have your own children and blah 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 right? So I think it is, uh, it's a tough case to make when they're very young, but, I mean, if you have a peaceful, happy household, I see no reason why the, the, the siblings shouldn't get along famously, uh, you know, with the inevitable internecine squabbles that go on with siblings, uh, but... Um, there is, um, uh, I mean, the case can be made that, that you know what's better for the sibling, uh, sorry, for your child as a whole. And obviously, I mean, I think having a sibling in your life is kind of a good thing if the sibling, if it's a good relationship. Um, yeah. As a, you know, there's, there's pluses and minuses. So, uh, but that's sort of my, my thoughts on it, not that there's anything <laughs> conclusive that I think that anyone can say about that. Yeah, and she's, she's definitely, uh, she's seen examples of her uh, cousins playing together where she has two, you know, two uh, brothers and sisters and all this. And she just loves it. So I, I don't see where moving forward, she would not want that. <laughs> I feel like she's kind of, right. yeah. And right. she, there'll, there'll be lots of times when she doesn't want it probably when the newborn is there. And I mean, just, and it may not be that easy to explain, but you know, sometimes as a parent, you just have to grit your teeth and know that it will make sense to your kids in time. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, cause they're young and all that. So, all right. Okay. Um, I, I, that's just all I, I was thinking about. The, uh, I'm very concerned about uh, respecting my child's preferences. So. No, and I mean, oh, good for you, man. I mean, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> what I, you know, I, I want to be reincarnated as your second kid. That's my plan. <laughs> um, no, listen. I mean. That's fantastic. I, you know, the sensitivity that you're bringing to this question is is beautiful. It's wonderful. I am moved, uh, and not quite beyond words because I still got to run a show. But I'm I'm very moved, and I really wanted to congratulate you, give infinite props and respect and honor 
to you as a parent for being so sensitive to the preferences of your kid. Man, that's that's gold, baby. Gold. So and you know, be sure to outbreed the status. So I wouldn't stop well, it too. Maybe a baker's dozen. That would be the point. Yeah. And the reward I get is I, I she gets around family and everyone's complimenting on how she's the happiest baby that they've ever seen. And right. they've all got And next hopefully they'll ask, and how did you <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, yeah. And, and of course, and, and in fact, someone uh, posted a cartoon on Facebook about people criticizing, oh, you shouldn't sleep with the kid and you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. All these, you know, the, the more evolved ways of parenting as opposed to a violent way of parenting. And then well, the, in the last one, that they're asking, well, well, how's your baby so happy? <laughs> right. And, right. Yeah. But I, I, you know, I'm. I'm sort of a fan of co-sleeping if you can manage it. I mean, that seems to me, I mean, I sort of go back 50,000 years. I mean, that's yeah. a pretty important thing. I mean, I think the babies are kind of designed to sleep most comfortably with their parents. And if you can manage it, if you don't have some jujitsu baby who <laughs> does these constant ninja flips, then um, I think that seems to be a positive. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty good place to start. How did we evolve and what are we used to and all that kind of stuff. Right, right. And, and I try to do paleo as much as possible with that because they were used to being held all the time. That's just the way we developed. That's right. And that's why I, I don't shower. I mean, 50,000 years ago. <laughs> oh, wait. There were waterfalls. All right. Well, I guess I better go and uh, stop weeping up my own okay. armpits now. Well, well thanks very much. Off, and uh, congratulations again. Uh, and uh, this <laughs> just all sounds too wonderful for words. So good for you, man. Uh, thanks for all your help. Thank you. Next, we have Ross. Of Ross, if you could just flip on a bit of a falsetto, uh, we'd like to get more women on the show. And it's either you or me. And uh, so, go for it. Ross, are you there? Oh, oh well, Steph. Um, <laughs> it's like Michael Palin with a groin injury. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. Well, first I want to say thanks for taking my call. Um, I've always had a good time whenever I called in here, so... I appreciate it, and I like how you've handled some of the calls today. They've been relevant to some stuff that I've been experiencing. Um, so I guess I have a, a multi-parter, if that's okay. All right. Sneak. All right, go on. Yeah, sneaking one in there. Um, I guess I'll ask, um, I'll ask uh, this one first, which is uh, I'm trying to get a tutoring business going, like uh, where I tutor people – you know, high school age or younger and whatever, and then uh, tutor students at the local university and anthropology and sociology and maybe help some of the foreign students with English and just kind of help people work on their papers. I'm not going to write papers for people, but I'd like to help them. And um, mm -hmm. I was just wondering if you had any advice as far as getting that going, um, how, how I could market myself better and sort of introduce myself to people. And also, how to overcome this problem, which this is a problem that I know you have dealt with, which is where people would love to have your help, and they want your help, and they'll talk to you all day about it, but then when it comes to the part where they would actually have to make any sort of transaction financially, they don't want your help anymore, or they don't want to actually do that. They're just trying to get that help for free, and um, so I guess that would be my first question. Right. If you had any advice, how are you? Uh, yeah, how are you marketing yourself now? Um, 
Well, right now, it's mostly been word of mouth. I am working on some flyers and stuff like that to put up. But uh, And I talked to a lot of people when I was a substitute teacher and got some people like that. And I, I do tutor people sometimes online. But, um, yeah, that's pretty much all I really have going on right now. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're heading in the right direction, sort of flyers and, and so on, I think can be a good uh, you can also if you I mean if you wanted to spend some money uh, you can very geographically target google adwords and other kinds of online so, you know, very specific to your town or wherever it is that you are uh, and that can be um uh, that could be useful because of course the good thing is that you only pay when they click at least that's how it was when i was doing it so i think online advertising that is very geographically specific can be uh can be very helpful and um the other thing too uh is that you may want to go you know, just talk to a college and say, look, I mean, this is the service that I'm offering. I think it's win-win. I mean, if, you know, because I know a lot of colleges, they get people who come in from high school who can't spell, don't know grammar, you know, just come out of the <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> brain mash of, uh, yeah, well, you know, probably even better than, than I do, um, the, the, the level of education that's going on in this area. But you can talk to the colleges and say, listen, um, if you end up with students who get better grades, that's good for you. If I end up with students who will pay me, uh, even better for me. Uh, and, um you can have a look. There may be bulletin boards. You can post some stuff in or whatever. Um, you know, when you're starting out, uh, there's, there's, you know, you know the term lost leader. I'm a big believer in lost leader. Hell, my whole podcast series is <laughs> a lost leader. But um, I'm very much around if you want to differentiate yourself, you have to um, do, offer something cheap or free. So, you know, it might be first lesson free, first lesson half price or whatever it is uh, kind of thing. And um, uh, that that will get you in front of people. I mean, the key thing I think to building a business is simply get people to consume your product. And from there, if your product is good enough, then they should, should pay for it. Right. I mean, free samples, taste tests, you know, get the stuff for all the time. You can't go down to a park without somebody offering you some Ben and Jerry's in a cup or something. And so I think, I think lost leaders are, are very important in establishing a business. Uh, people, if they don't know you, they will discount your price just naturally. Right. I mean, uh, if you've ever ordered stuff online, you know, here's a computer by Dell. Here's a computer by Dell with three L's. <laughs> Which one do you feel is going to be more reliable? Well, it's the company that, that you know and so on. So, I mean, advertising as a whole has huge amounts of lost leaders in it, right? So, you, you know, if you are some sports drink and you hire Kobe Bryant for God knows how much, enough to make a philosopher grind his teeth at how much celebrities get paid to market sugar and carb drinks – but the reason that people get celebrity endorsements for start-out products is they're saying, look, we've just sunk a whole bunch of money into this, so we're going to be around for the long haul. So don't think of us as a fly-by-night company. You know, that's, we spend a lot of money, get a big, a, a big, you know, and movies do this all the time, right? I mean, the more money a movie can spend on promoting itself, the more money usually has been spent on the movie uh, and, and so on. Uh, also, if they hire a big star, then you know you're not going to get cheesy production values uh, because they spent a lot of money, so you know you're going to get a certain kind of quality. So I mean, I think I think lost leaders are are pretty important uh, in the software business. The first software program I sold was five thousand dollars, and the last one was eight hundred and fifty thousand plus plus plus. Uh, so it takes a while to <laughs> get up into the larger figures, and the way to do that, I think, best is to um, you know offer some sort of incentive to to start consuming the product and of course then you get more context even if that person ends up not buying it he may say oh i had a you know this tutor who was seemed seemed good i couldn't do it at the time or whatever just get your product in front of people and you get to practice providing the best quality service and so i'm a big one for you know first session free kind of thing um now the, the question about you know people are interested until they have to pay 
Well, I mean, the standard economic argument is they're not then that interested uh, because they're not willing to pay. You know, I <laughs> every day or two, I mean, this and sometimes a couple of times a day, uh, I get emails or PayPal. Somebody will donate something through PayPal. Um, <laughs> I hate to say it because, you know, I want to sound ungrateful for any donation, but there does seem to be a kind of disparity for me. You know, somebody says, oh, man, I burned through all of your, you know, I burned through half of your podcasts and it's changed my life. I, you know, I used to be fundamentalist. Now I'm atheist. Uh, I used to be a statist and now I don't long, I no longer donate to political campaigns. I freed up my time. My relationships are way better. I'm more in love with my wife. My relationship with my kids are better. Here's eight dollars. And that to me is just like, oh, oh. <laughs> I never know what to say. I don't know what to say. I used to refund that stuff. I did. I used to, I used to refund. I say, man, look, I mean, if, if this is only worth, worth eight bucks for you, you need the eight bucks more than I do. Because, you know, after PayPal, it's like six fifty, dollars right? So I, but then people would get <laughs> really upset. Uh, what do you mean you're refunding? Uh, you know, he says, pay whatever you want, right? Um, actually, it doesn't. It says 50 cents per podcast is requested. Uh, so I just... You know, I, what, what I do, and this is, you know, just anybody who's even vaguely, vaguely interested, um, anybody who, I, I just have to assume that they were not raised with a strong sense of reciprocity. You know, if, if the podcasts have changed your life, then maybe I could be worth more than a happy meal. You know, <laughs> that would be my, my particular thought, you know, the tens of thousands of hours that I put into philosophy and this show and, and all of that, um, you know, if, it's, if it really has changed your life, you know, so if you're no longer going to church, you're saving a thousand bucks a year. If you're no longer donating to political campaigns, you're saving thousands of bucks a year, maybe, or hundreds of hours or tens of hours or whatever. And if your relationships have improved, then you're spending much less time fighting. Put all that together, you're saving thousands and thousands of dollars and having a much higher quality life. You know, maybe shave a little bit more than eight bucks off that pile and <laughs> send it to me. Uh, anyway, I don't want to sound un- – because, again, I don't want to sound ungrateful, but uh, there is this disparity between what people say about the value of the podcast and what they're actually willing to type into uh, a PayPal window or whatever. And um, so I there, – there is this disparity. I don't want to make this about <laughs> me and my show, but there is this disparity that uh, that occurs. And um, – uh, I think the only the only way to do it from your, from your perspective is bring the you know if you if you're not going to do the last leader you have to bring the financial conversation up first you know because if somebody thinks you're giving away encyclopedias for free they'll they'll chat with you all day but the moment you say they're sixteen hundred bucks you'll find out if they're actually interested or not right yeah, if there's going to be an exchange event I've chatted with uh, parents before you know chatted with them for forty five minutes about how they would love for me. You know, they'd love to have a tutor for their kid, and then, you know, they don't, but they don't care about having a tutor for the kid enough to pay me what a, how, a paltry amount of money that they're going to be giving me. But they'll talk all day about how bad they want me to do it. So Right. It's, now, there's just two other things. I'll, yeah, no, of course. And, uh, you know, <laughs> so, you know, people will talk a lot, right? People will talk a lot about the good that they want to do. But then if you ask them to actually do it <laughs> and uh, you're in a different you're usually in a different conversation two other things I mentioned before we move on to the next caller the first is that find people who've got successful tutoring businesses take them to lunch pick their brains ask them for 10 minutes on the call on the phone or whatever I mean I've done shows here where I try to help people get their own podcast started and so on but you want to try and find people who've got success and ask them uh, most people are very happy to 
share their success. Most people who are wise in the ways of business know that competition is, is good for them. It's not like, well, I'm not going to teach you how to become a successful tutor because then you'll take half my – no. <laughs> you'll be advertising the value of tutoring and people don't just take the first tutor. They'll, they'll Google. They'll look for other tutors or whatever, right? So it, it will raise the value of the business as a whole. Like When I started out in software, our field was very small. Every new competitor who came in, it was like, yay, fantastic. That means that they've done the market research. They know the market is bigger for more than one company. They're going to be out there advertising. People aren't going to spend that kind of coin without doing their market research. So that they're basically – now it's made the best man win or made the best software package win. So the more competitors who came into the marketplace, the happier uh, I was certainly as, um, as, a, uh, as an entrepreneur. So uh, take them to lunch, uh, find people. And the other thing you may want to do, of course, is you may go want to work for another tutoring company for a couple of months. Um, you know, uh, obviously not with the intention of poaching clients, but, you know, you can learn a lot about a business from being in a successful business. And uh, then, you know, you can stay there for as long as you feel you need to absorb whatever works in the business and then go do whatever they're doing. Um, I think, I mean, Brett Vanat from School Sucks, uh, from the School Sucks podcast runs a successful tutoring business. I'm, I'm sure that he would give you a, um, a few smidgens of time to, to help you to understand how he did it. But uh, try not to reinvent the wheel. I, I made that mistake too often uh, in business. Um, Look online. Are there are there books? Are there online courses? Are there you know has somebody written a book on Lulu about how to start a successful tutoring company? I mean, do um, uh, do research. Uh, a lot of us uh, <laughs> uh, independent types feel that invent reinventing the wheel is a is a good thing. And I'm not saying it has no value, but I think that um, there's probably a lot of expertise out there that you can get access to if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, thanks, man. All right. Oh, yeah, you can call in at School Sucks Live. Oh, and, um, uh, oh cool. But, um, all right, yeah, school, you're talking about School Sucks Podcast? Yeah, I'll go check it out. Thanks a lot. I didn't realize he had a tutoring welcome. business, so I'll look into that. Yeah. I thought it was a tutoring business. In other words, he put up old-style British houses, but it actually is tutoring, uh, T not D. So I want to mention that. It's important to get these things straightened out. All right. Do we have? I know. Sorry. 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 I, I was actually no, biting that. I, that I joke love for it. About 20 I love minutes. it. I was just biting that, that joke for about 20 minutes and it just it got out. And I apologize for the out, low man. quality of the jokes. Uh, but I feel, you know, like if you have a, a dumb joke inside you, for me, it's just like, you know, it's like builds up to a good fart. It may be unpleasant for everyone else, but you feel a lot better. So uh, I just uh, tooted something savage and uh, sorry. <laughs> so. All right. Um, it just so. smells best to you. Yeah, no, it doesn't even smell good to me. But, uh, but you know, next we have... Better out than in, I always say. Sorry? Hello. Hi. Um, so my topic for today is uh, discussions that you have with people who are statists or you know, argumentative about the position of anarcho-capitalism or voluntarism. Or I guess, do we say voluntarism or voluntarism? You know, I, I don't know. I've, I was told rather sharply many years ago that it's voluntarism, but I think voluntarism is a better is a better word, uh, I, or I just generally prefer philosopher <laughs> philosophy. Uh, I think that's a better term. Uh, anyway, but uh, go ahead. So yeah, voluntarism is fine with me. I found that uh, when I'm discussing these things with friends and you know people on the online and so on, that uh, certain words and certain concepts are are really um, misinterpreted or have a stigma associated with them that, that cause you know a, a, a clash. 
obviously the word anarchy has uh, you know certain mixed connotations, and um, I know you really like to use it because well, it means what it means, not what the society has like you know abused it to mean, um, and you'd like to draw that that dis- you know disparity up and and discuss it, but um, sometimes that just stops the conversation. And so I found that uh, recently, when I said that, um, you know, that you're that we're still in, we're still basically slaves, that slavery, the term slavery specifically, just drives people up the wall. And so I'm wondering if using enslaved can be a way to mitigate that. Um, obviously, we're not right. really indentured servants, but we are enslaved. It just may not be, quote, slavery, according to what people's common parlance view of slavery is. Yeah, I mean, on the story of your enslavement, um, I get, you know, a comment every day or two, basically, oh, yeah, I'm so I'm so enslaved. I have a car, a 60 inch TV, Internet, uh, (laughs) you know, whatever. Uh, And um, and that's right. I mean, of course, people's concepts of slavery, you know, Ben-Hur and Hot Sun and cat and nine tails and whatever, right? And so when they look at the modern world, they say, well, this is not that. This is not slavery. And, and, yeah. and of course, in terms of the appearance of things, they're completely and totally right. I mean, <laughs> I, I would not want to live at any other time in human history. This is my absolute best preferred, most yummy, scrumptious, delicious, covered in caramel and nuts kind of time to be alive. Maybe at some point in the future, there will, I mean, I think at some point in the future, there will be a, a much better society, a much more sustainable society, a much more peaceful society. But, you know, <laughs> this, beats 19, this beats being a 20-year-old in 1914. You know, this beats being a 20-year-old in 1939 in England or 1942 or 41 in, in America. This, you know, th- this beats uh, the, the quarter of the... European population dying in the Black Death. This beats the Roman Empire, where the average life expectancy is 21. It beats being a caveman and dying from a tooth infection. Um, so, you know, this is the best time. And that is it's sort of an important thing to understand when you're talking with people, that in a sense, it seems like you're complaining about a society that is full of some pretty immense riches and toys and treasures and so on. And I I accept that, and I think that's. I think it's a very valid and true argument. the The problem, right? The problem of that is, I think that we could say, and sort of the case that I would make is to say to someone, "Okay, well, if I were to slap a quarter million dollar debt on you, would you feel more free or less free?" Yeah. Well, they would say less free, of course, right? Right. And I said, at some point, I would slap a big enough debt on you that you would feel that you would be working for me. And there would be a kind of enslavement in that. And it's a different kind of slavery to say, I'm going to slap a debt on you, but you can choose your occupation to pay it off. That is a more free situation than I'm going to force you to pick cotton, right? Whip you. Right. Um, but fundamentally, there's, they're more similar in many ways than they are different. And then say, well, you recognize that the average American baby or Canadian baby or Greek baby is born hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt under the existing system. 
Yeah. Now that clearly is not the same as being free. And that is the result of earlier generations wanting stuff and not wanting to pay for it. And that's facilitated by the state and the printing presses of central banks and all this kind of nonsense, right? And it's also facilitated by the fact that because we get to choose our own occupations, we're that much more productive. Like you can't put a slave in a quarter million dollars of debt because the slave's productivity is so low that he'll, you just couldn't borrow that much off of that, right? Right. But if the slave gets to choose his or her own occupation and has some relative economic freedom – then the slave becomes so productive or the person becomes so productive that you can go much further into debt than, than if they were just a slave, right? Like right. a direct, you go into the fields kind of slave. And so excessive debt is definitely a form of control, of subjugation, of exploitation. Uh, and uh, it, you know, the fact that you get to work for yourself but pay other people off does not make you free. It's certainly more pleasant than being forced to go and work in the fields in the hot sun with no sunscreen and beaten up or whatever, right? It certainly is more pleasant. But the fact that it's more pleasant means that you can get even more in debt <laughs> because you're that much more productive. So, um, I, I, you know, the one thing that that is, you know, if you want to step out of the realm of the moral argument, which I do from time to time, and it's fine, of course, right? And there's no perfect way to serve these balls back over the tennis court. But when people say, well... You know, what about the poor or, you know, the health care and this is good. See, people get sick and it's like, well, well it's, this is all well and this is all nice. This is all well and good. But, yeah, you we, know, we can solve those problems that are all in debt. Too. Yeah, that's that, well, no. Yeah. yeah, we can solve these. But 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 people think you know, if people forget about the debt, then the impetus from a practical standpoint to change the existing system is much less. You yeah. know, it's like if if um, it's like, why should I stop going to college? Right. Well, because you're mounting up more and more student debt. That's why you should stop going to college. College is a lot of fun. Uh, I loved college. Well, I'm graduate school more, more, more so than undergrad. But if people forget that the systems are all running into catastrophic debt, then it seems like they – it just – it seems sustainable. Because there's no mathematical endpoint to the existing system. And so that to me is, is, is a great rejoinder, right? So like I used this when I was debating Professor Sifatli in, in Brazil. Yeah, but they're all, you know, yeah, there are countries that have less imperialism and more socialism, but they're still in debt. You know, dangerously, catastrophically, destructively. And it is fun. To, I mean, I don't think there's anyone who's got half a brain who would say that indebting the unborn is morally valid, right? Well, obviously You not. cannot... You cannot have any kind of reasonable, just, or moral system that piles hundreds of thousands of dollars, let alone one thin dime, of debt on the tender, bald skulls of newborns. And so they have to say that that's wrong. And if they're not willing to say that indebting the unborn is wrong, then I, I'm just not going to have a conversation with them. I mean, the, you could sort of prove it through UPB. And, and, but, I mean, if somebody doesn't have any kind of moral instinct, then you're trying to play catch with a blind man. I mean, anything he catches, it's going to be accidental and more likely you're just going to brain him, right? So yeah. if someone says, yes, it is wrong to indebt the unborn. Okay, great. 
great. Okay, so something has to be wrong with the system that universally ends up indebting the unborn, right? In Europe, in North America, in, in South America, and everywhere, right? All the countries are in debt. So, you can say, well, what is the problem? Why, why are all of these countries experiencing the same phenomena? And well, then you're into an interesting conversation, I think. But at least you've gotten over the hump of what's wrong with the current system. There's nothing particularly wrong. Oh, okay, it could be tweaked, it could be improved, blah, 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 blah. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> if it indebts the unborn to the tunes of hundreds of thousands of dollars, it is a fundamentally immoral system. And so, if you, and if you can figure out why it, it keeps indebting, right, you can get into that with sort of public choice theory and all that kind of stuff, then you, I think, into a, a useful conversation. But if there's, not, if there's no problem, you don't go to the doctor. Right. Does, that, does that make any sense? Oh. Well, um, I guess the, the words that... I, I'm, I'm just trying to get down to, like, you know, the word choices that we use. And um, you, you like, seem to like the confrontation or, and are willing to walk away from a, a, a debate or a discussion um, right away when you see a lack of intellectual honesty um, or morality, um, whereas I tend to be kind of like a, a pit bull and just latch my teeth on and jerk like crazy. Um, so, and, and look, I mean, I, that, certainly in, in public debates, you know, I, I have long debates with people I disagree with. So I have no problem with the pit bull approach. For me, of course, you know, if I get a show of it, so much the better. But um, in, in my private life, I mean, time is just incredibly short. I mean, I just, I, you know, I, I used to, I long for the days back when I could sort of write books. Right, my time is just incredibly short, and competition with quality time with friends and family. And I'm not saying this is not the case with you, but for me, you know, the competition is, or I could be playing with my daughter and my wife, or I could be going out for dinner with friends that I I love and hold dear, or I could, you know, go with some borrow some friends' kids that we could go to the Butterfly Conservatory or a farm or down to the lake or whatever. And so for me, it's like, or I could be doing X, Y, and Z uh, is is the competition that people are up against if I'm sort of not not doing a show, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, all right. And then another one that I seem to run into on a regular basis, in addition to like the standard like knee-jerk response to bad you know, words that have been tainted, um, the other thing I run into is uh, that people... This is kind of like the social contract, the contract thing that uh, some people had uh, been talking about earlier on this call. Um, today, you were talking with the, the guy, and um, by the way, Tom Woods has a great um, argument against the social contract, uh, con- the social contract um, thing, and uh, I would really encourage the first caller to take a look at that. Um, just do a search on YouTube um, for Tom Woods, and it's his most recent video. Um, that being said, um, you'll deal with people who will say things like, "Well, government is our best, our best way of examining how to deal with um, social problems," and we've come to that conclusion after a period of, you know, a large amount of, of you know, exploring and, and, and testing and, and variety. And my response to that is, uh, "Well, no, it's actually it's a." Uh, it's it's not logically determined by people acting rationally. It was a system that uh, wasn't even challenged or examined by society. It's a holdover from tribal obedience to the alpha male. Um, that modern man needs just as much as we need to keep dairy away from meat anymore. I mean, a cheeseburger. Wow, <laughs> we don't actually have to keep them separate. Um, so, 
you know, the alpha male, he had uh, special privileges that no other male had. He could rape, steal, murder. Nobody would question it, um, except for someone else that wanted to um, replace him as the alpha male. Um, and our society has the same view of government that we once had of this alpha male. Um, they're special. They can kidnap, but it's called arrest. They can steal, but it's called taxes. They can murder, but it's called defending our interests or war. Um, so this double standard, you know, we... we can obviously see it's immoral, illogical, and unnecessary. And um, their response. But see, to that, but see, sorry if I if I can just say sorry. No, no tell me about the responses before I jump in. Sorry. Um, well, the, the response to that is typically, well, that's you know, show me how that's historically valid. I believe that um, you know societies developed through a, a series of people coming through, you know, coming together voluntarily and blah blah blah. Right. And uh, I just I, you know, there's so, there's a great. There's a sorry. There was a great quote that was in a book I read recently. I got from Laissez-Faire Books. Um, strongly recommend their their um, um, their club, the Mind the Book Club. Uh, and, and in it, the guy was talking about school boards. You know, that people say, "Well, if you want to change your school, get involved in the school board. Go and run for governor of the school or whatever. Right? Go be a teacher. Or go whatever. Right? Yeah, I get that. All. And he was saying, "Well, you know what nonsense? What nonsense? Let's say there's some grocery store." that doesn't have the stuff you like or has poor quality stuff or the stuff is, you know, always three minutes from its due date. Are you supposed to spend the next 20 years of your life trying to reform the management practices and getting into the organization and spending countless thousands of hours attempting to reform the business practices and they end up doing of that grocery store? Well, of course not. You just say, hey, that grocery store is not for me. I'm going to go to the one across the street. Done. As they used to say, done and dusted. Done. So this idea that, you know, if you want to change the system, you've got to go in and change, like, no, forget that. Or, or what we should do then is we should say, okay, well, if a woman wants to get divorced, then, you know, she has to spend, you know, 10 or 15 years in court trying to get that to happen, right? <laughs> Whenever, right? So, uh, but, but that's not, not how we run any, any kind of rational any kind of rational system, but you're falling into a bit of a trap. And maybe it's, you know, maybe it's not a trap for you, um, but, but I, th I think it's a trap. And the trap is that you have to get someone to agree with you that the state is not the result of a rational and consistent experimentation with alternatives. Now, of course, logically, of course, it's not because the state specifically disallows alternatives, right? You cannot introduce an alternative currency to pay your taxes with. Right. Uh, you, you, you cannot uh, not fund public schools. You, you cannot uh, not sign out of, of old age pensions. You cannot, uh, at least here in Canada, avoid the healthcare system. You, you can't. Right. And so the idea that this is some rational experimentation among, it's like, well, if the other opportunities or experiments are banned and you can't, anyway. But, but the reality is, is this is back to the against me argument. So if somebody was making this argument with me, it'd say, okay, well, you believe that it's a rational blah, 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 and I believe that it's evolved from this. So are we free to disagree? Yeah. Somebody has to say yes, of course, right? It's like, okay, then, then you should send your, mo your money to the entity you call the state, and I should not, because I disagree with you. Now, we don't have to agree. That's the beauty of a free society, right? In a status society, you've got to get a majority of people to agree with you about something to even have a chance of changing it. And therefore, needing to change other people's minds is really, really important. You gotta, as you say, you've got to dig in like a pit bull. You've got to hang on there. You've got to change people's minds. <laughs> but the beauty of advocating for a free society is, hey, you think the welfare state's great? Fantastic. I don't have to argue you out of that. 
I just have to be free to follow my conscience if I disagree. And if you're not going to grant me that freedom to disagree with you, I'm not going to pretend to have a debate with you. But if you remember that somebody can have a full-on belief in the efficacy of the police, they can have a full-on belief in the efficacy of the court system and the prison system and government control of currency and borders and (laughs) whatever, taxes, tariffs, controls, whatever. They can fully believe all of that stuff. As long as you're free to disagree with that person, that's fine. But in the status paradigm, you have to change other people's minds or you're doomed. But in a free society... People can believe whatever they want. Now, it's my belief, like, so for instance, if somebody's really, I believe that drugs should be illegal. Fantastic. Am I allowed to disagree with you and, and act on it? Well, if no, then, okay, I'm not going to pretend to have a debate with you if you want me thrown in jail for disagreeing with you. But if I am allowed to disagree with you, then clearly I have to be allowed to smoke whatever weeds I want uh, to, to answer my own conscience or at least not pay for the pursuit and caging and incarceration of people who pursue activities I don't find morally objectionable. And it's my belief, of course, that as I talk about in in, uh, Practical Anarchy, the free book available at freedomaderadio.com forward slash free. Look, if somebody wants the the drug war, like let's say a quarter of the population doesn't want the drug war, well, then they get to opt out. And then the bill goes to the other people. And of those, a certain people, number of people will break away because the bill gets higher, which means the higher bill goes. And then the last guy gets a bill for $100 billion. (laughs) Suddenly, I'm sure he can find his way through to tolerance of other people smoking drugs if they don't get to socialize the cost of their own particular moral hangups. So, uh, yeah, I would just really focus on the fact that, that you don't need people to agree with you if you're advocating for a free society. You just need to have the right to disagree with them, which they're willing to acknowledge. Yeah, the uh, against me argument is is definitely like a moral one, but I'm, I'm I guess what I'm I, I, I like to come at it from multiple different ways, and I can make that argument fairly fairly clear and um, concisely, but uh, then I also really like to do the, uh, um, the logical thing, like um, you know which is more more likely to achieve the optimal result? Um, having one person throw darts at, a, at the dartboard, um, having a committee select a person to throw darts at a dartboard, or having everyone that wants to throw a dart at the dartboard have a chance to throw the dart at the dartboard, whoever gets the best, the closest shot, um, or the shot that we like the best, ends up you know being the person that we give our money to. And so it's basically explaining the the free market thing, and and so then when it comes to you know addressing problems like um, how do we build the roads, um, which one's more likely to achieve the the optimal result, the one where you're competing to see who can cooperate best with other people, or a system where you have only one provider, obviously the competition wins out, and that one works really well so um well sorry but uh, sorry but the, the problem with that i mean as i'm sure you're aware is we have, that we don't want to have like 65 roads going you know highways going down the same no no i, I don't care about that i mean the, the market will decide all of that but the problem with that is that there is no such thing as the general social advantage right that there's only advantage for specific individuals and so like right now i think it's in in quebec they're investigating all of the mafia ties to construction companies who get preferential treatments from the government, right? right? For those people, they make a fortune. Oh, sure, sure. But I'm, but we, when we're dealing with uh, this type of discussion, um, you have uh, the ability to basically say, 
there are moral actors and immoral actors. And the ones that are the moral actors are the ones that are not choosing to take advantage of theft. And the immoral actors are the ones that are willing to take advantage of theft. And so... Right, but the sorry, but the moral and immoral actors that need to be identified in a debate are not outside the debate. Oh, I know, I agree. It's the, the no, but the moral and immoral. This is the against me argument. The moral and immoral actors in a debate. First, we need to define in the debate who's the moral and the immoral person. And this is why, if somebody advocates you being thrown in jail for disagreeing with him, then he is an immoral actor. And so this is why, for me, philosophy is always about the personal. It always starts with the personal. It always starts with what's right in front of you, the person you're sitting across from, the person you're having a debate with. That's the moral nature you need to determine, not some abstract group of people in the future who might benefit from a more free society. That's all very abstract, right? It's the ethics, right? This is why, you know, <laughs> they just put out a video and an article, uh, which was also published in Ernie Hancock's uh, journal, um, does spanking violate the NAP? Well, see, there's something we can <laughs> look in the mirror and and decide. Does spanking violate the non-aggression principle? Uh, and, you know, in, in this particular conversation with me across from the table, who are the moral actors in this conversation? Not – and again, you, you can do it any way you want, right? I'm just telling you my particular what I think is, is the most important. Philosoph philosophy has to be made real for people. It has to not be abstract. It has to be something concrete that is definable in the here and now. Because as long as you're dealing with the abstractions, in my belief, you don't prick anyone's conscience, right? But if somebody is going to stare across the table at you and say, yes, you should be thrown in jail for disagreeing with me, you either find out – if they have a conscience, which is kind of – there's no point discussing ethics with people who have no conscience. It's like discussing diets with dead people. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work. Um, but uh, so either they – right? Like so the other day, um, a couple of weeks ago, this, this um, Jehovah's Witness called in and, you know, he was not willing to have – he didn't have any moral problems with God killing the unborn or children. And so then, you know, this is a person with no conscience, with no moral – barometer or, or steerage of any kind. Well, at least a, so at you, least you, you screwed up. So you can't have a conversation with that. No. Isn't, I mean, it's not – in a case, he didn't have any problems with right, it. Right, but uh, I, would, I would say that he could make a very simple claim that uh, destroys your – that's immoral. It's, it's just a different morality. Um, the, uh, the claim is basically that um, that which is, exists on Earth and in the, in the material and in the, in the existence of our – lifetimes and, and, and stuff that happens in this reality that we know is, is you know, living is not relevant. It is... No, and I understand, like, I fully understand that argument, but if I were to say the Holocaust was a virtuous action, because in another universe, it might have been morally the best thing ever. Well, obviously, that would be a hugely problematic statement, right? Right, but they could actually agree uh, with so, that, too. I mean, Right, but what I'm saying is that anybody who's willing to to take an unbelievably evil situation and say that it's it's I have no moral problems with it because in another dimension it might be considered virtuous uh, is somebody without a conscience. I mean, if if there's no slowdown or no, in my opinion, right? I don't have a brain scan or anything, right? But but I can't have a debate with somebody who doesn't have a conscience. I mean, I'm not going to extend the courtesy of ethics or, or you know, with, without, uh, you know, without somebody who has, has a conscience because and, – and so this is why if you bring philosophy into the immediate, into the here and now, it's very difficult for people. It's very painful for people. I understand that. I really do. 
but it's the only way that philosophy can be acted on. And if you can't act on it, then it's not going to do anything uh, in particular to, to change your behavior. You know, how are roads going to be done in a free society? It's a great question. I love the question. Don't get me wrong. I think that these abstracts are a lot of fun to talk about, and they really are, uh, and it's great. But it's, you know, it's, it's like doing a crossword. It's, it's great fun, but it's not, not a particularly moral situation. The moral situation is what you can change and affect in the here and now. Philosophy is, you know what, it's like um, a Ouija board. You know, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever, I've never had, but I mean, when I was younger in the 70s, Ouija boards were kind of big or whatever. So Ouija boards, like, you, know, you push the letters and you spell things out or whatever, right? Uh, so this is, to me, what philosophy for a lot of people is like Ouija board, right? But <laughs> philosophy in the way that I think about it is you end up with the devil standing, a demon standing on the Ouija board <laughs> that you have to deal with. Uh, that's a little different from this really sort of subtle and abstract pushing around of the letters thing. It is something tangible in the here and now that has to has to be processed, acted on, and decided. And that's my, my particular – it's not always, right? Sometimes I'll have very pleasant abstract discussions and so on. But I do think it is about that which is actionable. And the first moral judgment that needs to be passed is about the people in the conversation, not about the provision of roads 100 years from now. Anyway, that's my particular perspective. I hope that – I'm not saying you would agree with it or anything, but I hope that at least I've made my, my points clear. Just one uh, quick opinion from you on, on what I said earlier um, before I go. Um, did you like that uh, that association between the alpha male and special privilege in uh, government and special special privilege? I mean that we've. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's useful. I would not say that that's the source of government. I think that was the pre-source of government. I think that what happened was the problem with the alpha male thing is that alpha males get old, and they then get overturned by the younger and fitter members of the tribe. Right. Well, so some alpha male is you know. In a, well, no, but the the reason that they live on is that they they invent ethics right? oh. <laughs> and they invent religion so that they can get an infinite stronger and, and party that's, that's to back point. them up. It's, and therefore, striking against the elder of the tribe, even though you can take him out physically, striking against the elder of the tribe becomes immoral, even though they gained power according to their strength. You now cannot overturn them according to your strength. Uh, so I think that's more the foundation of a larger hierarchy. Uh, but anyway, that's sort of my... Uh, my particular well, I guess that was uh, perspective my point, though, on is, things is that we had this alpha male thing, and then the alpha male, in order to maintain his power over his tribe, um, created a concept of God um, and used that to create fear of the unknown, and then created religion to maintain his power over those people, and then religion evolved into what we now have as government. I think that the first governments were actually religion. Yeah, I mean, strong people will will beat you up uh, to control you, but weak people will give you a, will put a curse on you. You know, uh, they'll they'll voodoo you. They'll they'll curse you with they'll curse you with hell or or whatever bad crops. They'll infertility. They'll, they'll they'll put a curse on you because they cannot physically dominate you, and therefore they have to use language and ethics and philosophy and you know all of the um, uh, low caste resentment stuff that Nietzsche talks about. Uh, they have to spin webs of words to control you. Uh, and to me, that's the foundation of propagandist governments. Um, and I think that's actually fairly uh, fairly traceable. And um, and then you end up with the self-selecting situation, right? I've talked about this uh, in a speech I gave in Vancouver, which should be available in a day or two. But um, you end up with a – like, so why do we know philosophers? Some philosophers and not, not other philosophers. 
you know, why does everyone know Thomas Jefferson and almost nobody knows Lysander Spooner? Uh, why does everyone know Socrates and, you know, some of the, uh, not Murray Rothbard or whatever? Well, it's, it's because, of course, when you end up with that kind of hierarchy, you end up with the people who have the most resources and control over the most resources, the status and the top of the religious uh, pile. They choose the philosophers that get uh, broadcasted. And they, they, they pick out of the heap of, of thinkers, they pick those who are of the most value to the realm, to the ruling classes. And this is a phenomenon that has not changed at all from ancient Greece to now. Uh, the internet has changed it to some degree. I mean, obviously, I would not have gotten <laughs> a tenured position at Harvard or anything like that. Of course not. But so the internet has changed that by, you know, no longer having an intermediary. Uh, uh, no longer needing a middleman, no longer needing, needing the approval of the king to get a book published or to get um, to contact with people in the world. There's no gatekeepers. I think this is a book that Jeffrey Tucker's uh, either just, I think it's coming out next week. And that has changed things enormously in a very, and this is why I say, it, oh, I don't want to live in any other time. This is the most incredible time because you and I can have this conversation with no intermediaries. We finally, finally have a free market of ideas. We finally have a free market of ideas, and it took the internet to achieve it. A true free market of ideas is when you are neither bribed nor barred from public discourse according to your value to the ruling classes. That's all it comes down to. And we have a free market for the first time in human history of ideas. No gatekeepers. No people get to say, well, this book can be published. Oh, this book can't be published. Oh, this guy really fits well into this faculty. Well, this person really, really doesn't, and so on. And... The lack of this gatekeeper, this direct potential communication, drives quality, I think, in a way that, I mean, I think this is the best, it's not just the biggest, I think it's the best philosophical conversation in history. Certainly, it's the one that the market has chosen in terms of its size and scope and uh, power to people. And uh, so, I think that, that this lack of selection for those who are useful to those in power which isn't just like, well, there are all these philosophers, we're just going to make this one famous, but it even selects who goes into philosophy and who doesn't. And that is something that has just been blown apart by the internet. I mean, if everybody had, a P had to have a PhD in computer science in order to run a software company, we would have approximately 1% of the gadgets we have now, yeah. <laughs> right? There'd be no PC, there'd be no Windows, there'd be no iPhone, there'd be no iPad, there'd be no, I don't know, I mean, there'd be no Android, there'd be no Linux, there'd be all this kind of stuff, right? And so the free market in intellectual content in the digital realm includes philosophy. I mean, if everybody needed $10 million to, have, to, to make a computer game, well, there'd be no Minecraft, there'd be like all the other stuff that is, you know, there'd be no Flash games, all this kind of stuff. So, Bits and bytes are a form, obviously, a form of communication, communicates information. Uh, the liberation of, the, uh, of information from the gatekeepers, the possibility of the spiderweb tentacles and netting of direct communication over the whole world for the first time in history is what has driven this show. Uh, and, and the users, of course, people like you with these you know, amazing, fantastic questions. I, just, I, I love these Sunday calls. This, these conversations are fantastic to me. And that is because we, we finally have the chance to, to connect without intermediaries. Or without approval. You know, we don't always have to be whispering in church. Sorry? Or without approval. I mean, there, there were times where, obviously, there was suppressed speech that was so oppressive that 
you know, you'd have to sneak off and hide in a warehouse somewhere and have your um, church meeting about Jesus during a certain period of time. And then after that, then if you wanted to talk, be a Protestant, then, ooh, we had to do the same kind of thing. And, you know, after time, then um, if you wanted to be an advocate for, um, the you know, an abolitionist, then you had to sneak off and hide. Um, and now that we've got the Internet, we don't necessarily have to sneak off and hide, although uh, with modern you know, government government systems and programs in place now that, you know, the potential is that uh, we may re revert back to having to sneak off and hide. But uh, fortunately, technology will be able to uh, beat that in uh, providing um, anonymous methods of uh, exchange. I mean, we currently have, an, um, like, Bitcoin allows anonymous transactions. So, I mean, we, we can certainly... Looking to you know at the, at this point in time in our lives, we're actually coming to the point where technology will force logic upon the illogical. Well, I think that that will certainly come. Like so, I mean, this this allows us to bypass licensing, yeah. right? I mean, I was thinking about this in terms of the 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 Paul Ryan. Let's do the Ryan sandwich. <laughs> it's the Ryan sandwich beginning and ending the show. The the most important thing to know about Paul Ryan is that Dick Cheney says, I worship the ground Paul Ryan walks on. And uh, since the ground that Dick Cheney walks on is filled with the damned souls and endless flames of perdition, uh, that is uh, truly a uh, a boost from the devil himself. But um, they're talking about uh, controlling healthcare costs and so on, right? And all they're talking about is basically cutting spending. And what you need to do to control healthcare costs is to remove licensing. Licensing is a form of monopolization that is enforced by the state. Uh, to remove licensing is essential because what has to happen is people who, who can't judge the quality of an idea can only judge the letters at the end of someone's name. Oh, this guy's got a PhD from Harvard. He must be really uh, great at whatever he's doing, right? And that's because people can't judge quality. You know, the great thing with the internet is people can judge the quality of this conversation, the conversation between you and I, and, you know, if they have half a brain, they won't care what letters. In fact, they'll be more suspicious of more letters rather than, than, than not. But they, they can't talk about licensing. The foundation of state power is propaganda, and propaganda requires licensing because licensing is you hold off on people's productive abilities, you raise their debt, you increase their time commitment, and then afterwards you restrict what they can do and say – and it artificially raises costs because people say, well, I had to wait eight years or ten years to become a doctor. I had to go through all of this crap. I had to go through um, you know, the 36-hour weeks and all of that. And so now I've got to make me some money, right? So this drives up the cost. And once people have, have deferred their income and earnings to that degree, and then they come out the other side into licensing, well, then you've, you've got them, right? So anyway, so I mean, but, but the question of licensing never comes up. In reducing state power, how are we going to control healthcare costs? Well, how about letting midwives, you know, do their thing? Uh, how about um, giving prescription powers to uh, uh, non-doctors? Uh, how about uh, all these? But but this doesn't, right? It's got to have this monopoly, and this monopoly is rent-seeking. This monopoly creates in the intellectual realm, in the realm of, of, of physical production, in the realm of healthcare, in the realm of academics. It, it all uh, is is the same kind of deal. Uh, you get people to defer their income, to postpone their adolescence forever until you can only become a professor when you're in your mid-30s or late-30s or whatever. Uh, and then people are going to really toe the line because they've got so much sunk costs there that they're not going to do anything which is going to risk them actually becoming a professor, which means they have to toe the line. This is, licensing is an incredibly powerful, soft form of censorship. 
that I think is really important to to understand and which is why uh, the internet is such an amazing medium because I could uh, never have completed high school as you know <laughs> all the people who teach philosophy uh, teach philosophers who don't have degrees for the most part right a few of them do did uh, but um, uh, but the amazing thing is it really only comes down to the quality of the product nobody buys an iPhone nobody says well I'm not going to buy an iPhone because Steve Jobs rest in peace didn't have a PhD in computer science right they just say hey is this iPhone cool does it do what I want is it neat is it interesting is it you know is it feature rich is it fast is it you know they, they only care about the quality of the thing itself not the credential of, of the people behind it and that is such an unbelievable revolution in the mind. This accelerates human progress to such a staggering degree, and it splits the world. I think it splits the world into two groups. And one of the groups is those who are still addicted to and wedded to credentials and licensing and this, that, and the other, in terms of how they judge something. And the other is, is the iPhone fast? Not, does Steve Jobs have a PhD in computer science? I can't buy this product. The you know I I don't want to buy Windows 8 because uh, Steve Ballmer doesn't have uh, a um, I don't know a PhD in uh, computer software business administration or whatever. Um, well, you see, Brad Pitt is offered to work on my film for twelve bucks, but he is not a graduate of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, so I'm not going to uh, to do that uh, or whatever, right? And so. And this is not to say that the training and, and so on, it doesn't mean anything and so on, right? But I think in the disciplines which are only deceptively hard, and philosophy and, and ethics, I think, are in those disciplines which are deceptively hard. In other words, they're not really, sorry, <laughs> they're not very hard. They're just tied into a whole bunch of knots to hide a whole bunch of corruption and justification for the ill virtues of those in power. But having this kind of direct communication is, is astounding, and the degree to which people have embraced what it is that we're doing here, have broadcast and amplified it, is, is amazing. And I mean, I'm incredibly grateful for the receptivity and openness of people who are on this journey, despite some of the rough patches and <laughs> bumpy sections that we've had in interactions with the world as a whole, which are to come and to, to past and so on. I think that, that, that people's belief and excitement and commitment about what we're doing here is astounding. I mean, this community, I mean, my personal community of, of friends and family is my, uh, my bedrock, but the community as a whole, everybody who listens to this, everybody who talks about this, everybody who's excited about this, even or perhaps even especially the people who fight it, it's important, it's powerful, and people's support and steadfastness in the quality of this conversation is why I'm able to hold on to my optimism. You know, I just had a conversation with Bob Murphy where he was saying that without his religiosity without his faith uh, he would fall into cynicism and despair without the quality of this listenership i would feel the same way so thank you everybody for keeping my belief in the world on an incredibly sunny and upward climb towards the truly astonishing vistas from which we can like jesus at the top of the mountain but without the satanic guy by our side where we can see the future and where we are going to take the world because it is through philosophy that we will find our way over these mountains it is the only gps in the fogs of the future so thanks everybody so much i'm sorry of course that we went a little bit over but great great conversation thank you everybody for your support i mean i really felt this you know when i was doing this this traveling and all of these uh, great speeches um it's just it's been a real pleasure to to meet everyone who's so supportive of this conversation in my travels 
it means so much to me. I, I don't think I can even express it without getting quite emotional about just what everything means to me in terms of how passionate people are about this conversation and what we're doing. It really does mean the world to me. It means the world to me that people are inviting me out to speak. It means the world to me that people are coming up and continually telling me about how much philosophy has done for them, how much improved their relationships, how they've given up on aggression with their children, how they've given up on aggression with their spouses, how they've given up on aggression with their friends. Uh, I, I just... I can't tell you how much that means to me. It makes everything just incredible for me. It literally makes me feel like I am a winged Pegasus arcing my way over the world uh, with rainbow lasers lighting up the fire in people's hearts. And it only comes back stronger and lights the fire in my heart even more strongly and even more deeply. And I just want to tell you how much it means to me that everybody is so amazingly invested. And I also want to tell you uh, just how much it means to me when I – you know, people who've met through through this conversation, who've met through philosophy, who've put these principles into practice. I mean, people are getting married. They're having great relationships. They're uh, having kids. They're, they're, I mean, obviously, the way that they're choosing to parent has a lot to do with what they've heard in this conversation. So, you know, people who've thrown money and poo at, at this show, um, I, I thank you all. I thank you all. And um, I, I just really want to open my heart to everyone and just tell you how much it means to me to um to be part of this to 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 have this kind of feedback to have this kind of effect to open your hearts and to trust someone that you know most of you have never met that you don't really know much about me maybe if you haven't listened to many podcasts but to open your hearts to open your minds to the arguments and the evidence that is put forward um I just I, – I admire people in this conversation so much and I, I know I say it a lot but I just really wanted to put this out, how much I admire the people who are taking on these immense burdens of changing their relationships, these immense burdens of demanding openness, honesty and quality in their relationships. Uh, the courage that it takes to change the world, this is a vastly accelerated pro uh, progress. And process. This should have been taking generations. Instead, it's taking years. It is a very dizzying and accelerated process because of the technology that we have available to us. It is moving faster than the speed of light <laughs> as far as social change goes. And um, I just, I just wanted to tell you all. I mean, I love you guys all. I really, I really do. I just, what was so different when I was a child? What was so missing for me when I was a child was a moral community where people were willing to take a stand and to take risks. You know, when I was a kid, I saw all these movies about, you know, there are bad guys and there are good guys and there's, you know, stand up and fight the bad guys. And, and this is what I was taught, even things about war and, you know, you stand up, these guys are really bad and we got to stand up and be the good guys and so on. And yet no one in my life when I was a child did anything like that, intervened to help me when I was struggling with child abuse or anything like that. Three different continents and half a dozen different schools and extended families and Priests didn't do it. Teachers didn't do it. There was this hollowness and this moral torpor and inactivity at the center of the world that I grew up in. That was a black hole that was actually even in my heart. It had, it had, it had passed into me. And it had become my heart where I think I felt, I know I felt, significant despair at the empty-headed moral posturing of mankind where the virtues were always talked about but the moment you asked anyone to act on those, those virtues they would back away in horror we 
are the hollow men, wrote T.S. Eliot, and I think that was something that I experienced as well. And that, I mean, my family, my friends have done a huge amount with that, but this community as well. I mean, I just, to be honest about, about the effect this community has on me, this has taken away the black hole in my heart that came from my history because I see people struggling and striving and achieving such incredibly powerful, brave, courageous, noble actions to see the gears of philosophy click into the cogs of people's hearts and minds and see, you know, like you're not just seeing people pedaling a bike where the chain's just dangling loosely and whipping all around, but it's actually on the cogs and motion is happening. People are changing. Relationships are improving. Confrontations are happening. Honesty is erupting. And if I hadn't seen that, if I hadn't had the incredible opportunity to see that, and of course I see more than anyone else in this conversation because a lot of so much of the communication comes through me, to see that has eased my heart and opened my heart in a way that I just, I really can't describe, but I just, I just want to thank everyone so much for the honesty and courage that you're displaying. And to thank you for restoring my belief in what people are capable of and what philosophy is capable of, because without you, I'm just a guy yelling into space. Thank you so much, everyone. Have yourselves a completely wonderful week. I will talk to you soon.